and welcome to episode 2004 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, not joined today by my co-host Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Meg is under the weather, which as I learned from David Grant's new book, The Wager is an expression that comes from the practice of putting ailing sailors below decks to shield them from the weather. Meg is neither a sailor nor below decks, but she is on the IL with flu-like symptoms. We hope to have her back soon. And so today I will get by with a little help from some other friends. First up, I'll be talking to Will Leach about the Cardinals, owners of the worst record in the National League, who were the talk of baseball this past weekend because of their decision to bar Wilson Contreras from catching. We will get into all of that, as well as Will's new novel, The Time Has Come, which has an effectively wild connection. Then I will talk to David Rosofsky, who is known not only for wearing a SpongeBob costume to Cleveland Guardians games, but for plotting the dimensions of every high school baseball field in the country. Some of you may remember several years ago, we were briefly obsessed with weird amateur baseball fields, oddly shaped ones with unusual impediments. Well, David has been tracking all of them and sharing some of the weirdest ones online, so he will share those with us today. And finally, we'll have a stat blast, or actually several stat blasts, delivered in person by frequent stat blast consultant Ryan Nelson. So let's get to it, and you may want to dial down your podcast playback speed just a tad for our first guest. I am joined now by prolific podcaster, columnist, and novelist Will Leach, who does indeed have a new book to promote, which we will get to. But before that, we've got to talk about the Cardinals. I'm sorry to say, Will, that is a big part of why you're here. And it's been a big part of why you've been here previous times, although almost always, probably always, under better circumstances for the Cardinals. I think this is your 12th time on Effectively Wild, and it's been a little while, and I went back and looked at the last time you were on, and let me just read the episode description to you, just to remind you of happier days. This was episode 1753. This was September 2021, which you may remember was also a notable time for the Cardinals. Then they bring on Will Leach to discuss the St. Louis Cardinals. Will shares what it has been like to root for the team during its win streak. When he realized they were playoff bound, what has gone into this incredible run, and which Cardinals are candidates for some postseason devil magic. Plus, Will makes the case for this year's version of the team actually being fun before predicting just how deep into October the Cardinals might play. So that was the best of times, and this is the worst of times. But thanks for coming back to talk about the Cardinals anyway. Of course. For the record, those, I'm going to make that same case now. Why wouldn't I make that case now? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it is definitely funny to, one of the wildest things of this. And listen, obviously, no one does or should have any sympathy for Cardinals fans in this situation or, or the front office for that. But it is good to know, and we will get into the details of this, it is good to know that as much as I and Cardinals fans have freaked out about everything that's happening, the front office is actually freaking out worse. <laughs> yeah. It actually is, like they're a little bit like, like that spoiled kid who finally something, like they don't get that extra piece of candy and they <laughs> totally lose their minds. Yeah. That is actually what's happening with the Cardinals right now. Yeah, and you and Bernie Miklas uh, co-host a podcast about the Cardinals called Seeing Red, which is usually just a little play on words, just a, a pun, <laughs> doesn't actually describe your mood as it pertains to the Cardinals, but now it might. I'd like to ask just how jarring it is 
for the Cardinals of all teams to be running off the rails in this specific way, where not only are they losing a whole lot more than any Cardinals team has at the beginning of a season for decades, uh, centuries, but also seemingly dysfunctional in a way that the Cardinals usually aren't. Again, not engendering a ton of sympathy here for people who root for bad teams often. I can't describe you as a long-suffering Cardinals fan. Maybe I can call you a a briefly but acutely (laughs) suffering Cardinals fan. You've been suffering for about a month now, and it's been really rough. <laughs> so <hard>. and <laughs> So coming on the heels of the Cardinals, always being in contention, always seeming to run a pretty tight ship and have a decent idea of what they're doing. How much more jarring is it for this team to be so bad and also just so dramatic in <laughs> an unusual way for this franchise? Yeah, and I think those are two separate things. I think one kind of followed the other. Like there have been issues the cardinals because they're you know listen they don't have like there are excellent reporters covering the cardinals katie Wu does a great job Derek Gould does a good job jeff jones they, uh they, a lot of people cover the team well but it's no it's not the new york market there still is not three years later really a clear understanding of exactly why mike schilt was fired like at a certain <laughs> level there's like, like some people might have liked it and some people might not have but we actually don't really still know the cardinals are a very closed off kind of organization yeah. and they're also Frankly, the company in a company town. It's worth remembering that, like, like St. Louis. I, I'm, a, I love. I actually love the city of St. Louis. I think it gets kind of a bad rap. But if you go to downtown St. Louis, it's the Cardinals and the Arch, and I, and there's, a, there's an XFL team and like a couple of motocross events at the old place where the Rams used to go play. <laughs> like, there's not a lot going on. The Cardinals are really this over kind of overpowering, powerful thing in town in a way that has started to lean into being more of the unquestioned empire that starts to look, when you really kind of look under the hood a little bit, things seem to be a lot worse off than you might have thought. And I think you can start with the way the season has started. On one hand, listen, the starting pitching was an issue. Everyone was concerned about the starting pitching. Heading in, the Cardinals did not go out and get anyone. You could see the arguments for not paying a ton of money for some of the free agent names that were on there, but certainly that that was gonna be an issue. The idea was they had enough offense and they had the defense was good enough that they'd be able to offset that. They got off to the slow start, partly because of the bad pitching, but it's also worth noting that the Cardinals were bad. They were not 10 and 24 bad. They were losing mm-hmm. in a kind of absurd ways, uh, games that clearly everyone would have expected them to win. And, and certainly watching the Cardinals for 20 plus years, you would have expected them to win. And they kept finding these weird ways to lose. They lost on a drop third strike the other day. They lost on, uh, they, 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 they've lost on bad umpire calls. They've lost on multiple errors. They've just lost in all of these weird kind of ways in a way that started to make you feel, I mean, my father, when we were watching the 2011 World Series, he said, you know, this is so, so wonderful. Whatever we have to pay for this someday is going to be awful. So just be ready when that happens. And unfortunately, it's been a while uh, since then, but certainly uh, it's really just been a total disaster. But at a certain level, he's still... Like the team is really talented. Nolan Arenado is not going to hit like this all year. A lot of things, have, their Pythags have not been as bad as their record has been. They lost eight in a row and dropped one game in the NL Central standings. Mm-hmm. So at a certain level, you know, it didn't really feel like it had gone off the rails. What really changed it was the Contreras situation and yes. specifically the way that they responded to it. Now, right. listen. Let's let's go with what they're claiming, and this could be what their mindset is. Actually, scarier if it actually is what their mindset is. But the idea is, it certainly appears to be that pitchers have complained about Contreras's pitch calling. 
Uh, not yeah. this framing. His framing is actually better. <laughs> his framing is mm-hmm. better than it's been in the past, and his bat's been fine. And certainly watching him, he's not Yachty, but neither is Andrew Kisner, it should be pointed out. <laughs> yeah. uh, and at a certain level, no one really expected him to be Yachty. There was just a base level of it. What appears to have happened after uh, the lost six or seven or 46, who can remember, Jack Flaherty had a miserable start. They got off to a lead, and he got absolutely destroyed in a start. He has not started this then. And after the game, he said something like, listen, you know, I mean, uh, you do what you can with the pitch calling, right? But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and it was clearly kind of this quiet, you know, subtle little jab that certainly seemed to be against Contreras. It kind of cascaded after that. And I think that what this really, the person I'm most worried about uh, the, here a little bit is honestly John Mosellock. Let's think about how this story tracked. We all wake up Saturday morning, Cardinals in the midst of a seven-game losing streak. Awesome. <laughs> 10 the 22. Everything's going great. Everyone's losing their minds. And he, and so the word kind of comes out that, like, turns out Contreras is going to be able DHing an outfield. Of course, the Cardinals just sent out Jordan Walker uh, right. to try to clear up their outfield situation. Tyler O'Neill's on the on the DL after after the hustle thing with, Carl, with, with Ali Marmol, which seems like it happened yeah. 50 years ago at this point. So we, they finally got that cleared out a little bit. Nolan Gorman's getting his at-bats at DH. Everything seems that, like, you can Newt Bar's back and looking good again and being happy. And, I mean, they've got Cardinals have Lord's Newt Bar in the dugout, and everyone's so unhappy. Like, what is going on? <laughs> and so at a certain level, things start to get cleared up, and then we throw this wrench into it. And more to the point, Contreras didn't seem to know. He was interviewed mm-hmm. by by Katie, Katie Wu, and he said, yeah, this was certainly a surprise. I didn't really see this coming. There had been reports that he'd taken some fly balls, but there, there certainly there, there was no uh, – no, he certainly seemed very shocked that it was coming. And then Mo started talking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that's really kind of the issue. Mo, And, you know, if, if you've followed the Cardinals for a long time, John Mozalak does not talk the way that, you know, I, I was watching a Cubs game the other day and Jed Hoyer was on the podcast and he was being kind of funny and relaxed and it was kind of fun to listen to him. And he and he was talking about uh, the, the new first baseman they brought up and everyone's all excited about it. But Mo is more of a, I have come down from the mountaintop. <laughs> and I will release to you some scrolls that I have to let you know, and then I will come back up. Mm-hmm. And that's generally the way he kind of does these things. And it's always kind of done with this, with this sort of uh, regal's the wrong word. It's more like um, uh, someone who's not a royal but has convinced themselves that they are, even perhaps to like a cosplay sort of attitude. So, um, so he really like he just kind of have this has this kind of attitude of I I know what I'm doing, and you will all listen, and you will all respond to me. And so, and it's generally worse because the team's been winning for 20 years. So it's like yeah. okay, well, I guess I guess it, I guess it's fine. But it appears I had a friend of mine say, is he going through a divorce or something? <laughs> because <laughs> because definitely there, there's there's a guy in midlife crisis mode. What he does is he says. You know, basically, Contreras, uh, we're not blaming Contreras. Right. We're just saying that there are expectations that uh, for preparation that we expected to be there and don't seem to be there. So we're going to take a step back. Will this change down the line? You know what? I hope so. it's just just like so meanwhile so then at this point shortly after that Contreras gives an interview and he said and not only does he say like I'll support the team remember Contreras skipped the World Baseball Classic He's mm-hmm. getting the World Baseball Classic because he specifically wanted to work with the pitchers. Yeah, you know, the pitchers just, Adam Wainwright and Miles Michaelis, who were at the World Baseball Classic. Right, and he was so <laughs> gung ho about joining this organization. He seemed oh, so happy to be a Cardinal. It was just a, a marriage made in heaven, and then it's just a and month it's specific, in. and also yeah. specifically following Yachty. 
Right. He clearly loved Yadi and respected Yadi. So he follows Yadi. And so then he calls out the, yeah, actually, uh, the, 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 I know it's really fun to talk about Woody Allen these days, but the Annie <laughs> Hall moment where like, I happen to have Marshall McLuhan right here. Right. Where right. he brings out, yeah, he's like, I just FaceTimed with Yadi Yomelina today. And he said, yep, these pitchers need to execute. So <laughs> things are going great. Okay. Things are, everyone's <laughs> communicating and everything's going wonderful. So yeah. then there's this massive, massive backlash. Cause again, the idea that never minding the ridiculousness of thinking that Andrew Andrew Kisner, who, by the way, is not a good defensive catcher, let alone not a good hitter, a miserable hitter. The idea that he is somehow the guy that's going to come in and fix this, but and how much of a problem it causes Contreras to play the outfield in DH. Like Contreras, we're in month one of a five-year contract. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, even if you're like, you know what, we fought Miles Michaelis and Jack Flaherty are and Steven Matz are upset. We must make them happy. They're all gone before Contreras. Like, 20, I don't know what you're doing in 2027, but <laughs> Wilson Contreras is getting paid by the Cardinals in 2027. An absolutely kind of crazy thing to do in addition to everything else. There's this incredible backlash to it. A backlash that I have to say I have don't remember seeing involving the Cardinals since like after Whitey Herzog left and Joe Torrey was there, <laughs> to be honest. And, and if, I mean, you know, if you've seen the highlights, they've gotten booed in yes. a way that I talked to Bernie Miklas about this on seeing red this morning. He's been covering the Cardinals for 40 years. I asked him if he ever remembered hearing boos like that. And he said, occasionally there's been some for like an individual Gary Templeton had a moment where he flipped off the fans one time, but he's just never seen boos in the team like that. And clearly the team freaked out. <laughs> the team really freaked out. So then Mo comes back, comes back the next day and says, okay, okay, we're not doing the outfield thing. We're not, he'll be a DH. We're not going to do the outfield. We're not crazy. And you know, and then then maybe at some point, if he gets the chance, he'll uh, maybe we'll get back to the whole catching thing we signed him to do just like four months ago. (laughs) Right. Um, But the scariest part to me, and this is where I felt like, oh man, he's going to tear the whole thing down. Because at a certain level, the Cardinals are due for a bad year. They've had a good year for a long time. I don't Mm -hmm. think this season is doomed, but at a certain level, okay, like it's hard to be too upset about Things didn't work out this year. They're already far behind. Poor Cardinals fans. They had a year where they finally didn't finish over 500. Right. But what Mo did, Ken Rosenthal had a piece in the Athletics after Katie Wu had kind of done all, uh, all the, and Derek Gould had to get scoops. He had, had an interview with Ken Rosenthal. And here's the exact quote. The exact quote is uh, Rosenthal points out that the Cardinals were afraid to trade for Sean Murphy last season, but they, they were wanted to, but were unwilling to part with Oakland's ask. Lars Newtbar, who, by the way, the Cardinals have Lars Newtbar. Who would not want <laughs> Lars Newtbar on their team? Mm-hmm. Uh, Lars Newtbar, Brendan Donovan, and a young power pitcher. Here is Moselle's quote. Quote, hindsight is 2020. The types of player we thought we'd have to give up to get Murphy, we just weren't willing to do. You might say, would we be willing to do it now? I don't think that's a truly fair question. So if you were wondering, okay, well, now they've poisoned the well for Wilson Contreras for the next two years. Yeah. Just so you know, now they've done it to Newt Bar and Donovan as well. And so, and like, I don't know what's going on. Like, I have to say, there, I, I, my theory, it's all Mo. Like, I'm sorry, like, Mo has been an incredible steward of this organization for a very long time. But I think we have learned something about him and this organization. When things don't get off to a good start— Everybody loses their freaking minds. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. <laughs> and I think that that's really the the core of this. The reason this is happening, I still feel like they didn't address the pitching. They haven't addressed the pitching. They still haven't addressed the past next year. These are all major issues. But rather than acknowledge what seems to me the obvious thing, which is that Flaherty has regressed. Matt's kid doesn't have a third strikeout pitch. And Michaelis, uh, Michaelis has really not been right, really from the start of the year, whether he's throwing to Kisner or Contreras, I feel obliged mm-hmm. to add. Uh, rather than acknowledge that and say they could have done that, it's become 
the worst possible reaction to it, right. which is to nail the people that are going to be here for a long time. <laughs> well, I knew you would have some thoughts on this. I'm not oh, sorry, disappointed. Did, did, you have, did you have something to ask in there? Did you have something you wanted to say? Because uh, too bad. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like when a, a prospect, a highly touted prospect who excels at every level, actually struggles for the first time and then just can't handle the failure. And it's like, well, they have to go through that for the first time at some point. But it's uh, catastrophic. It's devastating to someone who's excelled at every level. It's kind of like that with the Cardinals, so you wouldn't know how they would respond to a slow start because so rarely do they have a slow start, certainly not like this. And Moselak was extended a couple months ago, right? Yeah. And and he goes back decades and he's part of this front office continuity that goes back even before him. I mean, it's been such a, a stable, steady ship there. And that's why it's even more shocking. I was doing a double take over the weekend because as you said, it was a lousy start, but there were reasons to be optimistic and to think, oh, they'll regret in a good way and they're the Cardinals and they'll be all right and in some ways their problem is that they have too many good players for the number of positions that they have right and then when I saw the Contreras news I just was like what is happening here I subscribed to an athletic newsletter that just emails me the top stories from the athletic and the one on Monday morning the top two stories were about the Cardinals <laughs> and they were like on back to back days it was like Wilson Contreras is playing the outfield now wait oh no he's not playing the outfield <laughs> that's kind of what it's been like to follow this team. And it's so strange because, again, Wilson Contreras is a known commodity, right? <laughs> That's the thing I keep coming back to. Yeah. He's a veteran catcher. He's very established. He's been in the Cardinals division for his whole career. So they've seen him up close and personal that whole time. They certainly just did a whole evaluation on him. They must know he's not the next coming of Yadier Molina. He's better than Yadi in some ways, and perhaps he's not as good as Yadi in some ways. But you'd think that they would have been prepared for a different kind of catcher. And if you look at the various defensive metrics at Baseball Savant or Baseball Prospectus, all the things that we can quantify, whether it's framing or blocking or throwing, he seems to have been about average or even a little bit better than average. And so we can't as easily put a number on working with pitchers and inspiring confidence and game calling and all of that. But it would have to be horrendous to justify this kind of move with your big marquee offseason <laughs> signing who's there for the next several years and who, by DHing or playing outfield or whatever it is, just makes your positional logjam so much worse because his bat as a catcher is a great asset. But if you start playing him in the outfield, then that makes problems even worse. You just sent down Jordan Walker because you had too many outfielders. And even if he's DHing, then he's potentially taking at bats from other players who now will not get that playing time. And so you're robbing your offense to some extent. And also by playing another catcher who's not going to hit. I know Andrew Kiss had a couple hits on Sunday. So it turns out, yeah, if Kisner gets a couple hits and Paul Goldschmidt hits three home runs, then the Cardinals should be fine and they should pass the victory. It's a pass to victory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, how, did, how does your evaluation of this catcher, like what did you think you were getting? And again, as you just hit on, no one thought the Cardinals pitching was good and they did so little to address the Cardinals pitching that coming into the season, everyone was saying this is the weak point, right? Even if you were like me and you thought the Cardinals were the best team in the division and also the that they might be a pretty fun team too, you still thought, oh, that pitching staff. So the fact that the pitching has been bad, 
how can you immediately look at Wilson Contreras and say we have to do something really drastic here as opposed to maybe we just have pitching problems? It's also worth remembering the messaging, too, was not like when Olimar Mole met with Contreras in the offseason, they had this very infamous, at the time famous, now it feels notorious, uh, meeting where they all, they sat down because they were talking about trading for Sean Murphy. I heard they were going to trade Lars Newsbar. Who? It's, hindsight's twenty twenty, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but th- when, they, when they sat down and, and had this meeting, Marmol came out and said, I went into that meeting, not sure what we're going to do with the catching position. I left thinking, we have our guy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, and, and I, I believed it. And, and listen, Contreras said all the th- right things. He, mm-hmm. he, he skipped the WBC uh, throughout spring training. It was clear he was like, he was one of the first guys there working with all the pitchers, doing, doing everything you would possibly hope to. Being explicit about two clear things. I want to take over for Yadier Molina and accept that challenge. And two, I know I will never be Yadier Molina. I hope everybody understands that. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody did. <laughs> I think everybody did. And you just doing, listen, putting aside, he's not the catcher that Yadier was or, or so on, which is, again, I, he would be the first to admit as well. Imagine you talked about how bad he would have to be to justify starting Andrew Kisner every day <laughs> as your as your ninth inning catcher, who I Sorry, I hate to keep saying this because Andrew Kisser seems like a very nice man. <laughs> He's not even a good defensive catcher. <laughs> like, like that, like it would be different if you, you know, if you had this whiz back there. It's like, yeah, you can't hit, but man, everything just runs smoothly. I, I you know, the, the old Tony Larusa, you can you can bat 165 and and you'll 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 start every day for me, like in the early days of of Yachty's career before he actually learned to hit a little bit. That that's not what Kisner is. And so you know, and, and when you really take a step back from it, listen, one of the things that has happened a lot during the Cardinals' t- slow start, there were a lot of issues with two strikes, being unable, making bad pitches on two strikes. There were a lot of uh, the new the new uh, uh, pitching coach, Blake, he is a big proponent of more sliders. They're trying to they're trying to get more sliders. That's a big thing he's talked about from the very beginning. Well, as it turns out, they've given up a lot of, Jordan Hicks has, gave up a famous, uh, terrible home run on a slider. Uh, Ryan, Ryan Helsley, uh, who throws the 119 miles an hour, uh, gave up gave up a, sli- a home run on a slider. There are a lot of two-strike two, two pitches they weren't getting that appears to have become part of the, the blame on Contreras, which is weird because, you know, Pitchcom actually does work both ways. <laughs> and, and there have actually been multiple moments where we have literally seen a pitcher shake off Contreras and yeah. then give up a homer on the next pitch. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> which is also a little frustrating to watch. So, and listen, they're surely, they're, they're, the Cardinals are a closed off organization. There are tons of things that we don't know that are going on with it. I have no doubt about it. But recent facts and evidence certainly uh, would make the argument that those things that I don't know going on are in fact worse <laughs> than I thought they were uh, than better. So yeah, it's, it's really worse. And I don't know I mean, I don't know how you pull back from, I mean, Contreras, like eventually, I'll put it this way. If Contreras never comes back to catching, I will be shocked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that really will feel like an even bigger disaster across it. Because, but like how, never, let's also not forget this, by the way, this happened the day before Contreras goes back to Wrigley Field. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you saw the cover of the Chicago Sun-Times today, but it's literally a picture of, 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 of Wilson Contreras saying not a catcher anymore or something on the front of the thing, <laughs> like as if that wasn't bad enough for him to come back. So, yeah. and I really feel like Contreras, listen, there are, there are Cubs fans that had issues with Contreras. Certainly there were issues in the front office there on his defense, but a month in he was, he's the biggest outside free agent they've ever signed. Mm-hmm. He's taking over for a legend. They started 10 and 24 with him as the catcher and no Cardinal fan. I know is blaming him. Mm-hmm. That yeah. seems like a bad sign for the front office. And I don't know if they thought that 
maybe there'd just be so much built up goodwill. I'm reminded a little bit after they get the, after they lost the NLCS to the Nationals a few years ago. They then if you remember that series, they had like five hits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it was just terrible. They got shut out in the last three games. It's an absolutely miserable series. And and there was at the in the press there was a press conference at the end of the season and Mo, and Mosellock was there and Schultz was there. And the first question and Mo kind of started his press conference and the vibe was very well, I know we just lost 4-0, but uh, you're welcome, Cardinals <laughs> yeah. fans. And it definitely had that kind of vibe. And I think that really, I think it is out of touch. Anytime they ever get some sort of criticism, there's always a, we take the long view. We mm-hmm. are the Cardinals. We take the long And listen, there's a lot of value in that. <laughs> I do yeah. think that's one of the reasons that they've been successful. But I also think it's put them in a position when there is something immediate to react to or something immediate not to react to. When they feel like they have to do something, they lose it. And I think that's really what's happened. <laughs> and they've really been tiptoeing around criticizing Contreras, even as they throw him under the bus, basically, by moving him off of the position. But they've been very careful. Marmel said, one thing I want to make super clear is that we are not losing ball games because of Wilson Contreras. Well, if you didn't think you were losing <laughs> games because of why in the world would you make this move, right? So that's very transparent. That's uh, not really saving any face for him because we know you think that or else you would not be making this move to placate your pitchers unless you think the pitchers are going to revolt unless you do it, even though they're the ones at fault, but they're just more pitchers than there are Wilson Contreras. So you're just appeasing <laughs> They've players. got quorum. Yeah, <laughs> right. They've got, they've got under the bus quorum right now. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I, I did want to ask about Marmol specifically because he's been extremely aggro, it seems like, all season long. Now, I'm not listening to his press conferences day in and day out. I'm not a Cardinals fan. And for the most part, I'm reading about these things in print and not even seeing the intonation and hearing how he said it. But every time he comes to my attention, it seems like he's popping off at someone or something, <laughs> right? And and I don't know how good a job you think he did last year. The Cardinals had their typical successful season under him. Right. But we talked earlier this year, Meg and I discussed the Tyler O'Neill blow up, right? And how Marmol seemed to oddly throw him under the bus in a very public way because of some perceived non-hustle, which regardless of whether he was hustling or not, seemed like an odd way to go about it. And in recent days, he keeps doing the same thing, right? So when it comes to Contreras, I know he was asked what Contreras needed to do to be used in the outfield potentially. And he said, I think the question should be, what does Contreras need to do to get behind the plate? Not playing the outfield, which seemed just uh, sort of aggressive. And then also when the fans were booing the Cardinals and he was asked about fans being frustrated and he took it in this way that I don't think the reporters were saying that the fans were more frustrated than the Cardinals themselves were, but he took it that way. And he said, you think they're more frustrated than us? I can tell you right now they're not. That clubhouse is extremely frustrated. And then he went on about to to sit here and think that other people are more frustrated than the people in this clubhouse is insane. Absolutely insane. I don't know whether anyone was actually implying that that was the case, but arguing that uh, the team cares more than the fans, that always seems to be sort of a a losing argument from a PR perspective. So is this just uh, another example of someone kind of being on tilt because things are not going very well for this team? Or was he like this in a, a lower key way last year? What is going on here? Yeah, there's a good piece by an up-and-coming baseball writer named Joe 
something uh, that he wrote a really good essay on this. Uh, he has a sub stack. You can subscribe to it, I think. Uh, Joe Pazinski wrote a really smart piece about this. About the, the, Remember, the day that Ali Marmol had that kind of pop-off about the fans, uh, the Cardinals had lost six in a row and had 41,000 people there for a Thursday afternoon game. Mm-hmm. So at a certain level, it's uh, like, you know, talk about being born on third base and thinking that you hit a triple. And I one of the things with Marmol that I think it's important to remember because obviously he was, you know, he's the youngest, he was the, he's the youngest manager in baseball and, and, the, and he kind of, a lot of people didn't know who he was, but you know, when Mike Schilt was fired, even in the press release, in the statement he gave out, he was like, yeah, obviously they're going to give the job to Ollie. <laughs> like mm-hmm. he's been with the Cardinals organization since 2010. Like he's mm-hmm. really been, uh, actually when he was a utility, he played for the, for the Palm beach Cardinals in, in, mm-hmm. in the mid aughts. So like he's been around the Cardinals forever. He is, he is a handpicked Moselock, protege like he'd like and you know this was always the issue one of the things when Tony LaRusse was manager of the Cardinals the idea was always a back even when Lunau was there the whole idea was there was a disconnect between the front office and the man and the manager we've seen this throughout baseball and lots of examples the idea that Mike Matheny would be that person was turned out to not turn out to be the case that he would be the combination of those so then Schilt came in and was seen more of as like a company guy but Marmol seems to be a little bit more than that to me I think the key to thinking about Marmol's kind of aggro thing which is definitely there is We've all seen his CB Bucknor thing, right? Like he had, mm-hmm. he had this kind of ongoing battle with CB Bucknor, where they had a big fight last year, and then Marmol tried to shake his hand before a game, and Bucknor wouldn't do it. I am not going to come out in the side of CB Bucknor is awesome, just to be as clear as possible <laughs> on this. But certainly, the, if you saw, I think there was a John Boy thing about their actual fight. Their fight last year, everything they were having a normal manager umpire fight until Bucknor said, "You just got here. You didn't even play in the league." Mm-hmm. And Marmol lost it mm-hmm. <laughs> and lost it. And that, and since then they've been, and I think that speaks to like the general thing about Marmol. I think Schilt had a little bit of this too, because he also had come up to the system and one of kind of Moe's handpicked guys. Remember, this is a closed off system. This is a biodome organization where everything <laughs> is all kind of in, inside. It's almost this weird, it, it, it's the Murtaws of, of the low country without all the murder and, uh, and so on. Like everyone is, they run the town. You know, so at a certain level, when guys get like groomed to put to get up there, Marmol is there because he's a, he's he's been part of the organization for a long time. He's there because they think he ideally he was hired because they thought he would be better with platoons. He would be better uh, to have a more flexible roster. That's not paid out at all. Turned out at all. But generally speaking, the idea in 2022 was he would do no harm. He would mm-hmm. do no harm. And listen, a lot of. Char- a lot of ways, as we all know, the job of a manager in many ways is to be a middle manager anymore. You are just communicating with the front office and the players. And so Mermel, because he was a company guy and because he had not played in the majors, kind of felt like Schilt did that he needed to kind of tough up a little bit and be like, I'm a tough guy and so on. And I think that kind of worked in a, on a team that he didn't have to do that too much on a team with Molina and on a team with Pujols and on a team with Wainwright. This year we've seen what happens when you like remember the the O'Neill thing, the thing about O'Neill when he was mad, he not only said he didn't hustle, he said, listen, we've got a competition going here. Mm-hmm. And and what that meant was I have too many outfielders mm-hmm. <laughs> is what that meant. And so O'Neill in this com in this competition that Murmol ostensibly is the one that's supposed to be the side what's going on, decided that was a point against him and he got all tough about it. That did not seem to work. It is worth noting that there was a bunch not a bunch of Cardinals that came out saying, O'Neill, yep, he needs to be hustling more. Like right. that was not a thing that happened. So yeah, I think there's it, there's a lot of red flags that have popped up. They were there last year. They didn't really become really clear toward, until the postseason, though again, you know, 
the the world the road is littered with managers that everybody liked until the postseason happened. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if that's entirely fair, but clearly you're seeing like the organization a guy that's gripping the reins really really tight. Uh, in a way that uh, it, it, it makes you f- realize, you know, he's in the office all day. He's ta- he's he's in these meetings all day. It speaks as the public representative of the organization. It speaks to the fact that everyone is freaking out. <laughs> right. And it seems like it's just the long shadow of Yachty that is cast over this organization. And people will always say, oh, tough act to follow. You know, uh, thinking back to Tino Martinez following Don Mattingly, or you know, it's always tough from a fan perspective for a player to follow a legend like that. But I don't know if I can remember an example of a team reacting in quite this way where they're just so obviously pining for this player's predecessor, right, in a way that is kind of harmful because Yachty's not coming back. I mean, Yachty was great, and I'm sure he did a lot of things better than Contreras, and Contreras also does some things better than Yachty, right? I mean, Yachty's been a pretty bad hitter for a few years. He was almost 40, so it's understandable, but you're kind of getting some offense and potentially trading some defense, and that was kind of always expected. That was always part of the bargain. So I guess you could say that, if anything, this is enhancing Yachty's legacy and and mystique and the idea that there was something about the numbers that couldn't be captured when it came to Yachty, right? I mean, the numbers are very strong. I I think he has a, a solid case as a Hall of Famer, even without building in some extra intangibles. But this is perhaps strengthening the intangibles argument to the degree that, you know, a star catcher comes in and he's basically moved off the position because he is not Yachty. You have to accept that that guy's gone and he's not coming back and maybe he was one of a kind. That's kind of what it is with Andrew Kisner. It's like, even if Kisner's not that great, it's, it's like he has some of like Yachty's aura like seeped <laughs> on him or something because he studied at the knee yeah. of Yadier Molina. It's like he's the direct link. Like he, he absorbed the wisdom of Yachty, the intangibles, right? And so he's the guy we're going to go with because he is more directly connected to Yachty. So I don't know whether even Cardinals fans who love Yachty and think he could do wrong wrong or like get over the guy like, <laughs> come on, like we got to move on. Like it's sort of sad. That relationship is over. It came to a, a nice heartwarming ending and we had a great long run. And now we have to move on to the next. It's like they're so fixated on the earlier era that they just can't accept this this new era with another guy who brings his own strengths. And this has always been kind of an awkward thing for the like it's a it's been a tension uh, certainly always with the Cardinals. This is an organization that again you know listen everybody no, I don't think anyone thought Pools was going to really be obviously they didn't think it was going to be what it was going to be but I think a lot of people by in May were like are they going to have to cut Pools by mid year? There's always <laughs> yeah. been a tension between the the continuity that the Cardinals really value and transition. I feel kind of weird saying this, but like Yanni Molina only played 78 games last year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like he only played 78 games. He spent, do you remember the video where he, where he, where he went away for, where yeah, he went away for a week team, and right? they had a video yeah. of him getting ejected from his basketball team. Yeah. Like, like Yachty from all reports, Bernie Miklas, uh, my, again, my colleague on seeing red talks about this all the time, but all reports Yachty was, didn't, wasn't really sure he wanted to come back last year. And they, the organization kind of persuaded him to come back, which also is speaks to this whole kind of like the, the Yachty as the Cardinals organizations would be. You know, mm-hmm. or like like the security blanket in a lot of ways. Yeah. So I, I think that's certainly true because he wasn't really he and for what it's worth, defensively he was not great last year. Like mm-hmm. never mind the offense. Like he was, he looked like he was ready to be done. And so you know the uh, the notion that the not only the notion that they knew what they were getting with Contreras. 
y- Yanni's been leaving for a while. Mm-hmm. So the the idea that this would come as any sort of shock is remarkable. I was pretty stunned, frankly, they didn't upgrade the backup catcher position heading into this year. Mm-hmm. Like Kisner's really just like I I don't see a lot of evidence that he should be be in really any sort of position to be a backup catcher, uh, let alone to be now the starting catcher and ninth hitter. So yeah, it's it, there's a lot of problems. <laughs> there's a lot of problems, and I'm waiting. You know, this I'll, I'll close on this. One of my favorite things that subplots with Yachty during his time with the Cardinals is whenever he was mad about something, usually at Mike Matheny, by the mm-hmm. way. Um, another thing to keep in mind for the Cardinals, by the way, they have this long hit. They haven't had to worry about They're like the Packers and quarterback. They haven't had to worry about catcher right. forever because Matheny was an excellent catcher before he was a horrible manager. And, uh, before, you know, Tom Pagnazzi and they had Tony Pena for a while. They've had like a lot, like Daryl Porter, one of my favorite players ever. Like they've been known for having great catchers. And so being in that position where they don't have it confuses and bewilders them a little bit. But one of the things that Yachty would always do whenever he was mad at someone, he would always go on Instagram. (laughs) Yachty famously would have these little undercutting things about Instagram. So this is my prediction if this thing doesn't get settled. Maybe maybe it will stop because Mo will stop talking to The Athletic. It's probably time to take a little (laughs) bit of a break. Uh, But I would say if things keep heated, I think it would not be surprising to me to see Yachty actually step in. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like actually step in and say something. It uh-huh. would, would not be a major shock to me, a little bit like uh, like Brokaw coming in being like, leave Brian Williams alone or something. Yeah. <laughs> there, there has a little bit of that because I think that uh, uh, particularly, I mean, what was the first thing Contreras did when all this was landing on him? Hey, guess who I just FaceTimed with yesterday and said the pitchers aren't executing pitches. Mm-hmm. The guy that you all miss. So uh, yeah, I, 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 that feels like the next logical step in this uh, in yeah. this madhouse here. Yeah, we got a listener email from uh, Ian, a Patreon supporter, who said, hear me out. What if Yachty was actually literally responsible for Cardinal Tepamagic? He actually <laughs> some sort of wizard slash mage slash necromancer and has been able to cast a magical aura around the team for his entire tenure that allowed them to frequently overperform their projections and base runs record. But now they don't have him on the roster and therefore they no longer have access to his magical powers. And that's why they're bad now. A month into the season, the Cardinals realized that in order to maintain their devil magic, they had to roster and start Yachty at catch. And for the magic to continue, he needs to continue to be the de facto starting catcher. At what point does his reduced performance based on the aging curve counteract the benefits of his magical abilities? How negative must his war be in order for the Cardinals to forsake his devil magic and like Superman going to his fortress of solitude, renounce their supernatural powers? I mean, it almost feels like he's become such a a talisman now. It's like, let's bring him back, you know, like put Yachty on the active roster, even if he's not actually playing. Just, Just list him on the roster and maybe his magical powers will rub off on the other Cardinals catchers. It's starting to feel that level of, of desperation or attachment to him. Listen, I've never met Tres Barrera. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, who is to say that he is not, in fact, Yadier Molina, uh, the, the new catcher that they brought up. It could actually uh, uh, be him. Uh, I will say, if Yad, if that theory is true, and Yad, it was Yadi's uh, black magic and uh, necromancer uh, abilities, uh, that is the first thing that's made anything that John Mosellac and the Cardinals have done in the last three days make sense. <laughs> <laughs> the idea, like maybe it's a way to try to get him to come back to to bring the black magic because it's right. it's madness. It's mad. like I listen. I love you. Cardinals fans love you. I think that I, one thing I, I thought was really interesting last year. Obviously, everyone knows Pujols. They get excited about Pujols, but a lot of national media would go to cover the Pujols thing and realize that Yachty was still getting bitter, bigger ovations than than Pujols was. Yachty is so beloved 
in St. Louis. It's also worth noting, like, hey, I don't, why did no one go to San, Fr- San Francisco last year? Be like, hey, Buster Posey retired and mm-hmm. you dropped 30 games in the standings. <laughs> yeah. So, hey, who's to say, who's to say it's not, uh, it's not <laughs> right. a fully catcher? Yeah. In retrospect, maybe it looks, it makes him look even more valuable, powerful that everything completely <laughs> fell apart as soon as he left. But last question about the Cardinals. So, uh, what are you hoping for now for the rest of the season? I mean, as bonkers as the Contreras decisions seem, they almost can't be worse than they've been, right? Just from simple regression, maybe it'll look like that was actually the right move because uh, they play a little bit better after this decision than before. But they're down almost 50 percentage points in playoff odds, according to Fancrafts, which is about twice as much as any other team. I mean, you think the White Sox are off to a lousy start. The Cardinals, of course, were the favorites in the division, and, and they're down now to long shots, basically. I mean, you know, 13% chance to win the Central and uh, just a, like a 20% chance to make the playoffs. Like, is that how low your expectations have fallen? And if they don't come back and make the playoffs and end up having a typical Cardinal season somehow, what would you like to be resolved by the end of the season when it comes to Contreras and Marmel and Mazalak and and just the, the positional clutter, right? And figuring out who the outfielders are and who the pitchers are so that you can go into next season, at least with a solid sense of the roster. Yeah, the pitching is a separate question than than uh, figure out the roster crunch because I mean they just need pitchers. <laughs> I mean they need to figure out which outfielders go well where and which DHs and how they figure out all the infield positions. They actually have a lot of talent there to figure out pitching. They have I mean they have Miles Michaelis uh, and Steven Matz after this year, and that's it. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. it. They all like Matthew Libertores look good. Gordon Graceffo's look good. There's guys like that you hope could maybe fill in, but there's that. It's that I mean, Jordan Montgomery's going to leave as a free agent, uh, or they're going to have to pay full price for him. So you know, I think that is something they have to figure out in the long term for this year. I'm sorry, but Wilson Contreras needs to get back catching as soon as possible. (laughs) Like like I I honestly, that to me is the quickest fix in that situation. And maybe Jack Flaherty and Miles Michaelis and Steven Matz either need to figure it out or understand that Steven Matz doesn't throw harder than 87 miles an hour and can't uh, finish out a two-strike. But maybe that's the issue rather than Contreras. I don't see how you can make anything the Cardinals have done really in the last kind of two po- two uh, hot stoves off seasons w- uh, makes sense if Will Wilson Contreras is your DH. Mm-hmm. I like I it doesn't you can't moving forward that just causes so many more problems than just letting them figure it out at catcher. Like mm-hmm. it's a, it's hard to see like that's what's so frustrating about this move. There's no upside. Like there's no upside to the move at all. Never minding that it doesn't make sense in the short term. And it's an even worse move in the long term. <laughs> there's no way. Like again, if Kisner were some up and coming guy, uh, if they believed in Ivan Herrera, who was there, who was who was their one time prospect to catcher in AAA, if that would be a different argument. But they don't have anything coming at that position. They already have too many people for outfield and DH. Contreras has to be the catcher for this team. And it is the thing that's so alarming about this is not only that it seems to mess up the roster right now, it messes up anything they were trying to do at that position or really anywhere else with their offense over the next two or three years. I think it was understanding that by 
26, 26, 27. Contreras was probably not going to be catching 120, 125 uh, games, but you certainly imagined him to do so for the first three years. That's the point of signing him in the first place. So I, there, there are, I don't think this season is over. I don't think it's mm-hmm. over. I still think there, there's enough. Aaron, we haven't even talked about how miserable Nolan Arenado's start mm-hmm. has been. He's been one of the worst hitters in baseball, and that's it's strange to watch. Uh, so there are things that are going to get better. I also don't think anyone's running away with this division. As I said, mm-hmm. they are closer to first place than the Yankees are right mm-hmm. now. So, like, you know, I, they went oh, one and seven over the last eight games and gained a game in the standings. <laughs> like, things are, <laughs> things are going okay in that regard. Like, they, they've they gotten some slack. I don't think the season's necessarily over, but they need to fix this. And the quickest way to do it is to get Contreras back at catcher. I'm sorry. I, I really believe that. And I suspect that's not an entirely unshared thought. Yeah. The Pirates are not unbeatable, it turns out. Yeah, it turns out, yes. (laughs) So, all right. Well, thoughts and prayers are with the Cardinals community Mm -hmm. at this time. We appreciate it. We appreciate it. Thank you. You know, we're all holding vigils for Cardinals fans. I've seen, I've seen all, I'm I'm sure is the, is the podcast now selling a St. Louis strong (laughs) shirt uh, to like, we we are with you during this difficult time. Yes. Even Cubs fans have, have come together, I'm sure, just to, Mm -hmm. you know, say we sympathize and uh, we would never uh, dance on the graves of our rivals here just because this is so tough. And and as I was saying in a, a recent episode, you know, it, it is odd that you would think that this sort of thing would be taken in stride when a team is so successful year in and year out that you might kind of give them a mulligan on an off year, right? Just to be like, hey, we've had it good. You know, like we, we've we led charmed lives as Cardinals fans. This team is always in contention. We're sort of spoiled by that. So the fact that, you know, Aaron Judge gets booed in the playoffs when he struggles a little after hitting 62 homers or the Cardinals get booed this vociferously like I understand why it is but it it is odd that it does not earn you any leeway there's no sort of sense of uh, grace or, or proportion like hey we've we've had it so good you know how can we complain about one off year it's we have it so good all the time that when we have it bad it seems even more striking by contrast and so it's it's uh, yeah. a shock to the system I would say that, but I would also say that, like, one bad season is bad. But, like, people were angry about the Cardinals. The Contreras thing legitimately made everyone be like, oh, my God, what is going on? Right. Like, I think that's the telling, because that is moving forward a problem. Yes. That we, we, I, I think even the most unreasonable Cardinals fan, and by that I mean me, I am personally the most unreasonable Cardinals fan, uh, can understand that, uh, you know what, they were not going to make the playoffs every single year. Uh, it, this is frustrating, particularly in Wayne Wright's last year. You'd like to see something good happen. The the problem with the Contreras thing is it it spo- it so it it uh, poisoned the the well for years moving forward. And I think that was what people made people really really freak out. Now the good news for you is that you will be distracted this month from the mm-hmm. Cardinal struggles because uh, you have a happy occasion coming up. You have a book that is coming out next week, the sixteenth. That's uh, just about a week away. It's uh, your second, I guess we could call it, uh, adult novel. Mm-hmm. The time has come. And your first was How Lucky, which came out in 2021 and which was wonderful. And I read it and I enjoyed it. And I've now got my grubby hands on The Time Has Come, which uh, came just a couple days ago. So I have not had a chance to dig in yet, but I am very eager to. So the time has come for you to plug this book because, uh, as people should know, pre-orders are all important for authors when a book is coming out. It really helps signal interest to the publisher, to booksellers, etc. when there's a lot of interest in a book before the release. And you have time to place your pre-order now and you will soon be embarking on a nationwide tour and a traveling roadshow to promote the book and, and talk to people about it.
about it. Now, I know it's difficult to tease this one without <laughs> giving things away because I've read your various attempts to <laughs> su- summarize the plot without spoiling the plot. Hopefully, you have that patter down now to the point that uh, you can deliver a, a tease without divulging too much. So tell people what they can expect from The Time Has Come. Well, the first thing to note to to Effectively Wild listeners is that uh, there are two names on the cover of this book. <laughs> yeah. uh, one is Will Leach, the author of the book. Yes. The other one is the person I'm talking to right now, yes. Lindbergh. I was going to ask about that because yes. the, the, the book flap summary says Lindbergh's three times. Now, can I take any credit for this? Can I accurately take any credit? Because I can take credit for anything I want, I guess. But would it be uh, truthful for me to claim that uh, my surname inspired the name of the pharmacy in this book? <laughs> it would be accurate, actually. We wow. get, and so I will tell the, I will tell the, I will do, I will try your plot thing. I actually have to go, I'm promoting this on Morning Joe. Oh, okay. uh, the weekend comes out and I have basically 15 seconds to do so. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to take longer than that now. Uh, <laughs> but uh, basically the, the idea, the premise of the book is there's a woman named Tina Lamb. She's actually inspired by that kindergarten teacher that stormed the Capitol, not mm-hmm. for political reasons, but she legitimately thought it's like a Pizzagate thing. Like there yeah. were people. And so she, uh, she is the book they placed in 2020 in June, 2021. She believes that something terrible is happening at this pharmacy. Uh, called Lindbergh's. She believes something horrible is going on there. And so the book starts with her saying, on June 22nd, I'm going to this place at five o'clock. I'm coming in and I'm going to stop what's happening. And then we fly and we flash back to the on actual June June 22nd, and we follow throughout the day six characters as we follow their regular lives. It all takes place in Athens, Georgia, which is also where How Lucky takes place, and it's also where I live. Mm-hmm. Um, I just make sure I get the street right. <laughs> and so uh, we follow those six characters throughout their day as Tina uh, pops up occasionally to tell you more about her life and kind of what's driven her to to be to this place. And we follow them throughout their day. They do not know that they are showing up at this place, that they're all going to be at the same place when Tina is showing up at the end of the book. So you get to care about these characters, hopefully, and uh, follow their journeys and see how their lives are kind of woven together. And then they all appear together at Lindbergh's pharmacy, your pharmacy, <laughs> at uh, 522. And we find that it's all happening. It's inspired by the book, by the movie Shortcuts, the Robert mm-hmm. Altman movie Shortcuts. Uh, uh, Shortcuts is not available for streaming anymore, so I often just say Magnolia, mm-hmm. uh, which is to say you follow a bunch of characters who are somewhat related and somewhat unrelated into uh but they all are uh they all come to a collective moment in in shortcuts there's an earthquake in uh in magnolia frogs fall from the sky uh but certainly uh you have a moment that hopefully speaks to uh, what it's like to the original title of this book was tumultuous times mm-hmm. and i think uh hopefully speaks to uh, uh what it's like to try to live this through this unique moment in human history or at the very least i will have the opportunity to expose what the Lindbergh family has been a part of uh for decades uh through this and it is worth noting that like literally there were two reasons that it's called Lindbergh's. Uh-huh. one was I was I, I was actually just starting with the first chapter and I needed the name of this place and I was actually listening to your show. I was actually listening to your show and I did I I was gonna call it Megs, but I thought I thought I thought you know and I wanted because basically what the, the the guy that runs the store is like the shine of the the sign of the of the Lindbergh family, but he didn't really want to run the pharmacy. And at one point he went off to try to start his own thing and it failed. And right before it failed, he tried to change the name to Lindy's uh-huh. to try to make it like to like connect to this thing that he didn't want to be a part of in this very sad kind of pathetic way and then he just finally gave up and came and came back and took over for his father to run Lindbergh's but he's very sad and he's very kind of uh, so and he is Theo Lindbergh so it's not Ben Lindbergh he is Theo Lindbergh so basically I, I once I realized 
oh, Lindbergh's is not a bad name because now I can use that Lindy's thing I've been wanting to do. Uh-huh. And then, uh, and and also the other reason I did it is because I am exposing. I Tina Lamb's thing is a true story and uh, she is exposing the monstrousness that's gone on <laughs> the Lindbergh's family for generations. Well, I know from experience it can be difficult to name fictional characters and mm. places and you can obsess over that and take way too long to think of a name. And so sometimes it is the best thing to just say, what is in, within my field of view right now? Or what podcast oh. am I listening to? I'll just take that. <laughs> so. One thing I one thing I will definitely say is if you if you if you read the if you read the time has come right now because listen there is baseball in this book I feel obliged to point that out mm-hmm. but also if you read this book and you follow a lot of baseball you'll be like wow there's a character named Goldschmidt oh wow <laughs> there's a, there's a character there's a character like the, eventually you realize there's so many characters in the book and so many side characters I'm like eventually I just have to start naming them about baseball players I'm yeah. out of names so <laughs> so there are a lot of baseball players uh, names in this book if just because I was watching a baseball game while already needed to, to toss a name in there. Yes. Well, that was, uh, I think you got the pitch down that you'll have to trim it further for the 15 <laughs> second version. I don't think but... Scarborough is going to give me the full thing though. <laughs> yeah, but I can't wait to read it. Uh, now I'm kind of apprehensive to find out what's going on in my pharmacy. I, I, <laughs> I'm honored to have made this uh, indirect contribution to literature, but also now nervous uh, that you have tarnished my good name. But I'm going to guess uh, that there's some misunderstanding here that maybe, maybe Tina doesn't actually know what's going on inside Lindbergh. Pharmacy. That's my hope, at least. I, I hope it's a nice, wholesome place and uh, a cornerstone of the community. I'll find out soon, along with everyone else who reads The Time Has Come. You can go pre-order it now everywhere you can find books. And of course, uh, you can find, well, so many other places. Ranting about the Cardinals is just a small, tiny percentage of his output, even if he's done it on multiple podcasts today alone. But you can subscribe to Will's Substack, as I do, and uh, find all of his collected works there, as well as original pieces every Saturday. It's called the Will Leach Newsletter. It's William F leech.substack.com and that one he's been naming after baseball players for a while now it's just <laughs> the name of, of cardinals players uh, it used to be wilco songs and now he's on to cardinals players so you can find uh, his uh, podcasting about movies and and the cardinals and his writing about movies and politics and baseball at mlb.com and everything else is in one tidy package at the newsletter but best of luck uh, with the book and uh where can people find out about where they can see you on this upcoming tour? Yes, I started in Athens, where, where the book is said, but on Friday the 19th, I will be at PT Knitwear uh, in New York City. If you're in New York City coming out, I am doing the event with the great Adam Moss, the mm-hmm. editor, the longtime editor in chief, the legendary editor in chief of New York Magazine, who, who uh, is going to uh, host the event with me. You'll also be able to find me in St. Louis uh, on May 26th with Bernie Miklas and uh, Jan- uh, June 2nd with uh, former, my fellow former Deadspin editor, A.J. Delorio, uh, mm-hmm. who will be at uh, Chevalier's in Los Angeles. So uh, it should be an entertaining time. If you, like, if you liked uh, our early blogs, and hey, who didn't, right? Uh, we'll have a fun conversation as well during that time. By the Sam Miller definition of a baseball movie, which is anything that has baseball in it, this is a baseball book, and it's also an yep. effectively wild book because uh, <laughs> my namesake pharmacy is in here. So do check it out. And I guess we've talked to you most recently when the Cardinals could not lose a game and now when they cannot win a game. So we'll have to have you on next time when they're just doing okay, you know, just at an okay time for the Cardinals. It's not as newsy, but uh, it doesn't always have to be extreme circumstances. Hopefully uh, 
that will describe the rest of their season, that they're doing okay. <laughs> uh, anything that's not this is just not this. I don't know what's going to happen, but it, this has to stop happening. Thank you, Ben. All right, let's take a quick break, and I'll be right back with David Rusofsky to discuss his efforts to chart every high school field in the United States, especially the weird ones. If baseball were different, how different would it be? And if this thought haunts your dreams, well, stick around and see what Ben and Meg have to say philosophically and pedantically. It's effectively wild. Effectively wild! All right, we are back, and I am joined now by David Rusofsky. Hello, David. Hi, how's it going? It's going well. Now, it's not going so great for your Guardians, and you're not here primarily to talk about the Guardians. You're here to talk about weird high school baseball fields. But I got to ask, since you did achieve some measure of fame late last year for being, quote-unquote, SpongeBob guy, who was wearing a SpongeBob costume to Guardians games, uh, specifically inspired by and to support Oscar Gonzalez, who, of course, walked up to the SpongeBob theme, I'm sorry to say that not only are the Guardians off to a somewhat slow start, but Oscar Gonzalez himself off to an extremely slow start, so much so that he was recently optioned to AAA. So I've got to ask, I know this is a difficult time. Do you have any uh, messages of support for the Guardians or for Oscar Gonzalez specifically? Have you not been attending often enough while wearing the SpongeBob costume? Is that what is causing the slump here? <laughs> so I went opening day for the yeah. for the Guardians in Cleveland. And it was it was kind of unfortunate. I showed up and the pitch clock that 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 went unnoticed. The one thing that really changed was the walk up songs. Yeah, you, can't, you can you can barely like barely hear the theme song at that point anymore. <laughs> it like at that point it's just like, are you ready, kids? And then it just goes out. Like like there's no singing the song anymore. It's pretty sad. Uh, so that's kind of unfortunate. So do you think uh, the pitch clock has sapped Oscar Gonzalez of his mojo because he can't hear the whole SpongeBob theme anymore? If if you want if you want to put a label on that, sure, yeah. <laughs> that, if we want to put that into a, in that box, that I'm fine by me. I do think I do think he'll he'll bring it around. I think everyone on the team is just really young, so I think it's just a growing process. Right. <laughs> well, your support I, I'm sure is appreciated. You have not abandoned the team. We, we can't pin it on you, even for superstitious <laughs> reasons. So Oscar's going to just have to figure it out himself somehow. And hopefully, the SpongeBob theme will be back, and he'll be back, and then you'll be back at the ball. Park. I assume For you sure. will not be wearing the SpongeBob costume in his absence. I, I don't think I will be. <laughs> okay. So, what you are actually here to talk about is your project to chart high school baseball fields in every state of the country. And you started this just over a year ago. You've just completed the 10th state, Connecticut. So, you got 40 more to go. I don't know if that means that you're on pace to finish in four more years or whether you've picked up the pace, but this has uh, started to attract a lot of attention because you've identified some really quirky fields and you've done a great job of documenting them. So tell me how this project came about. So I played baseball in high school. The field that I played on for my home field was one of the original that I posted about for Ohio. Mm-hmm. My first ever post. That was one of those four. I remember playing there, and I was like, "Wow!" You never really see. Just for context, my field had uh, the home run fence. Their left field was the school, 
So to hit a home run, you had hit <laughs> on top of the school. Uh, and I was like, wow, you never really hear about stadiums or like fields that do that. Like, I feel like we're an anomaly. So initially it was just like, how many fields do that specifically? And then it turned into like a whole, like, like once I started looking at Ohio specifically, I was like, wow, there's a lot of weird fields. And then from there, I'm like, oh, I should try and do this for like America. And then yeah. from there, it just sprung into this crazy thing. I, I finished it in like 2021 and then I just sat on it for a year. I was, I was like kind of nervous. I was like, what should I do with this? And then it, it kind of <laughs> led to this. <laughs> yeah, it's an ambitious undertaking. We went through a phase on this podcast where we were documenting some weird fields, and it was really just the tip of the iceberg because there's so many fields. I mean, we talk about how dimensions differ in the majors, of course, and they differ so dramatically in some cases. I think it's one of the best, strangest quirks of baseball at that level. But of course, the variations are much wider and weirder at lower levels, and there are so many more fields at lower levels than there are in the majors that if you think that the green monster or whatever is weird, then you have no idea. I mean, <laughs> there's so much weirder than that. So for you, what qualifies as weird? Because you have actually charted the weird field percentage for each state. For instance, Rhode Island, which you charted only 50 total high school fields in Rhode Island, but 22% of them were weird by your definition, whereas Ohio had 753 fields, but only 6.6% were weird. I don't know whether your standards for weirdness have changed over time as you've gone through this project, but what to you constitutes a weird field? Yeah, I do think it has changed over time. Like for Ohio, I remember when I initially did all of those fields, I was just kind of like, loosely just saying everything was weird. And then for my BFA thesis project over the last year, I had to like look back at them and I'm like, oh wow, some of these aren't actually as weird as I thought they were. <laughs> I definitely have, as time has progressed, I've gotten a little stricter with what I've found as weird because over time with more states, it's gotten like, I've seen more of those quirks and yeah. through all of them. So it's just like, oh, that's just a thing that exists at these fields. Right. Yeah. The bar for weirdness gets higher. <laughs> yeah. I The biggest one I always get is sometimes people send me fields on Twitter. Uh, the biggest one I always get is, oh, look at how big this field is. Mm. And while from like an imagery standpoint, yeah, it, it is crazy how they're theoretically you could hit a 800 foot bomb and it wouldn't count as a home run. <laughs> but I kind of try to steer away from those. Uh, I do have those graphics of just the outlines of the fields, and that's where those that has its place. Like I yeah. think those are cool in that aspect, but from a, like a specifically like weird standpoint, I think it's got to be something where like it was intentional. Your field had to fit inside of a like a specific space, and mm -hmm. that means you have to like whether it's like fit inside and use your school as the outfield wall, or like in some fields like the street is kind of like barging in on the fence. So you have like a 250 foot right field or something like that. Just something that was intentional to like fix a problem. Yeah, and that's why Fenway is weird and, and other ballparks uh, in the past have been weird because they were sort of squeezed into an existing cityscape, right? And obviously with a, a high school field, you're going to have to just make do with what you have to work with there. <laughs> and sometimes it's uh, not that conducive to a baseball field, at least in theory. 
So tell me, I, I guess, just how you find all the fields, right? Because you use satellite imagery, I suppose, to take measurements and have charts and diagrams. But how do you know that you have found all the fields? I kind of just go by the uh, state's high school athletic association websites. There's a big list that I found that has each of the websites for each state. And then from there, I go and find each school. Some mm-hmm. states are definitely harder than others. Like Connecticut and Rhode Island were so easy. They just have all the schools listed and they have all the playing locations listed. And so it was pretty easy. But some states like Ohio and West Virginia and Utah, it's kind of like a little scavenger hunt. (laughs) And you have to go in and meticulously look for each state and not just each state, but each state's school and their playing locations. So it, it, it is definitely laborious. (laughs) And did you say that this was part of your thesis project? I know that you just recently graduated from Bowling Green. Congratulations. So this is not just for internet fun. This was for credit also? It was originally for fun. And then for my thesis project, I had to do something related to digital art since I'm a digital art major. And uh, I was kind of reluctant at first to like show this to my class because no one in my, none of the art students (laughs) knew anything about sports. And so like... But eventually, I showed it to everyone and like, wow, this is really cool. And so, yes, my uh, my thesis project was Ohio specifically. That's how uh-huh. I actually created the uh, outline graphics. Was That was for my thesis project. And as you've gone through this, have you heard from people often who either have played baseball at those fields or went to those schools and have nominated their fields for weird field consideration or told you stories about what it's like to play on those fields or suggested that you underrated or overrated the weirdness of a field? Like, have you gotten a lot of feedback from people who have set foot on these fields? That's actually probably like one of my favorite parts of the whole thing Uh, for the thesis project. For the poster, it was more detailed. So I, I surveyed a bunch of people who played at the Ohio fields. And it was really cool listening to all their, like, hearing all their stories about how, like, someone got robbed of a home run or, like, vice versa. Like, someone got a home run that they probably shouldn't have gotten mm-hmm. because of the field. And just, like, just little small, intricate little tidbits about each field. I think it adds a lot of personality because you can just kind of glance at all these on Google Maps. And that's one thing. But just to hear from the people that actually played on the fields is a whole completely different dimension. I don't know if you're gathering data on when these fields were constructed, but have you noticed any trend over time toward more or less weird fields? Like, have you noticed that the weirder ones tend to be older or are there still very strange ones that have come online in recent years? I've definitely noticed that the older ones are more of the weird ones. The only ones that are like new and weird are kind of the ones where they're like, you know, what I'm talking about like the the multi-use fields mm, mm-hmm, where yeah. it's like all completely astroturf and it's like it's a soccer field and it's a football field and it's a baseball diamond, it's a softball diamond, all in one giant <laughs> shape. Those are probably the only ones I've found that are like, whoa, that's Definitely not a baseball field. Like, that's probably it for new ones. Are there genres of weirdness that you've noticed, like different classifications of what makes something weird? Could you divide it into categories? Like, you have your fields that are kind of uh, intersected by other fields, right? So the the outfield of one field is uh, the outfield of another field, that kind of thing. 
or you might just have just a weird shape. I mean, they all have like a diamond, right? That looks like a baseball diamond and is <laughs> that's kind of consistent. But then after that, is it just like th- the amount of foul territory or like how shallow or deep certain fields are, or, like how high the walls are? Like, what are the different ways that a field can be weird? I kind of have like a couple little, like you said, subcategories for each weird field. I don't actually like put that in the data or anything, but like mm-hmm. usually like the weird ones are either like oh outfield fence is really close to home plate and it's really short. There's ones where like there's a giant fence. So like it's regular distance, but it's like a 30 foot tall fence. And then there's also just the ones where there's like a road or like a parking lot that's like intruding on the outfield. Uh, and then I'm always a sucker for ones where there's like a sidewalk in the middle of the field. I love those. <laughs> yeah, there's great. a couple of those I've found so far that I'd like, I like. I always get a kick out of that. Just imagining someone like being like Ooh, trying to get by during the <laughs> middle of a game or something. Yeah, right. I said you charted the the weirdness by state. Sadly, Alaska has no weird fields, according to your calculations. Only 26 fields in total, but still no weird ones. Although, I guess uh, sometimes there's like no nighttime, so that's weird. But (laughs) still, the dimensions, not so weird. Have you noticed that the types of weirdness vary at all by state? Or is it just sort of the same sort of weirdness, but some states have more of that than others? I've noticed that it's either the really densely populated states... Mm. Or it's the really rural, not very populated, like densely populated states. It's either uh-huh. one or the other. Like the the middle of the pack ones are never really that crazy, at least so far. I haven't really done many of the middle tier states yet. I was going to ask about the order you're going and You've done Rhode Island, Hawaii, West Virginia, North Dakota, Connecticut, Maine, Ohio, Utah, Delaware, and Alaska. Is there a method to that? Are you going in a certain order? Do you have the next 40 states mapped out? So I made this like very loose scatter plot of uh, each state by population and acreage. Hmm. Uh, And so I'm just kind of like loosely going left to right in terms of population because I've found that most of the time it's actually the population that determines how many fields there mm-hmm. are so far. So I'm, I'm just kind of slowly going from left to right. From least populous to most populous? Yes. Okay. Yeah, with I a guess, couple sprinkles of uh, like populated ones. Like Ohio, which you started with, mm-hmm. I guess. But I guess that's uh, probably good just for, for positive reinforcement and for feeling like you're making progress and just checking yeah. states off, right? <laughs> yeah. That you get to go faster through them instead of starting with the, the really populous ones. So we have to ask about some of your favorites. You must have a top five or a top 10 or something. I don't know whether you actually have a ranking or you just have some sentimental favorites, but we have a tradition on the show of answering odd hypotheticals and sometimes they are about stadium dimensions and and how things could be weirder and the question is always uh, if baseball were different, how different would it be? And we talk about would it still be recognizable as baseball? So I am curious about some of the weirder ones that you've turned up and whether you've thought at all about (laughs) whether this is a feature that should be ported to the majors, whether you'd like to see it, whether it would still be recognizable as baseball. So give me as many of your favorites or any of the ones that stick out in your mind as you like. My go-to is always Monroe Central High School in Ohio. I think that was in the first Ohio post I ever did. Uh, That's the one where it's like the corner is part of a football field. And so, like, left field is, like, 270-ish feet, and then right field's, like, 510. 
I always have a sweet spot for that one since I actually went to that one for my thesis project and took mm-hmm. like like walked on the field of that one. And it, it that one is definitely jarring when you get there. Like so I'd say that one, Hundred High School in Hundred West Virginia. Mm. I recently found out that it's actually not for the baseball team, but it's so egregious. I just had to mention it anyways. There's no fence on the right field side and right field home run distance is 152 feet. Uh, so even for softball, that's crazy Yeah. to indicate what's a home run because it's on the side, like the right field side is on a mountain. They spray paint a line on the mountain and you have to hit the mountain high enough for it to count as a home run. So props to whoever came up with that idea. <laughs> Are are there some that you think like this would be fun to see higher level players to see big leaguers playing or like instead of doing the field of dreams game, they should play here just for maximum weirdness in one exhibition game per season or one real game per season? There's a field in Delaware called Sanford School. Their field has a right field distance of 228 feet and (laughs) the wall is only like 20 feet tall. So it doesn't really compensate for how short of a distance that is. Hmm. But I'd like the thought process that it might. So like, I think that would be a cool one to have players play on. I think that would be a real fun one. People just mash on that one. Have you heard anything from people involved or have you looked at any stats or anything to assess the offensive environment at some of these parks? Like if you see that it looks like an extreme pitcher's park or an extreme hitter's park, have you ever, I don't know whether data is available on that publicly or just talk to people about what the park actually plays like? Originally, when I was doing Ohio, I was trying to see if there was like a loose like park factor I could yeah. try and do for each field. I didn't do enough of that yet. I might work on that a little bit later once I get more schools done. Mm-hmm. I am curious about that though. It would be really interesting to see like a correlation between like acreage or like no fence or with fence and like the amount of home runs. Right. I do think there would there probably is an underlying thing in there that I think needs yeah. to be uncovered. Do you know, no pun intended, the ballpark figure, just how many how many fields that you're looking at in total? Or, or are you almost uh, afraid to look up the <laughs> complete number? I guess it might change for one thing by the time you finish the 50th state, but also it might be daunting to know how many more you have to go. I loosely Googled how many high schools were in America and it came out to somewhere around like 20,000. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm about... 1.5 thousand in uh-huh. so that, that was pretty daunting mm-hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah it's just a slow burn i guess right it's nice to know that these odd parks exist i think because there have been studies and analysis that has shown that major league ballparks have gotten more homogenous over time and you look at some of the really weird ones and yeah there are a few still surviving but you look back at the baker bowl or forbes field or polo grounds you know all these old parks that were just wedged into some urban center and they made do with the dimensions that they had just the outfield dimensions and the fence heights and all of that it's become more similar over time you know there's still a lot of variation but less than there used to be so Mm -hmm. it's nice that if you go looking the way that you have, you can still find some true strangeness in this great nation of ours <laughs> at the high school level, at least. What kind of feedback have you gotten? What kind of uh, support has this uh, drummed up on Twitter and Reddit and everywhere else that people are following your efforts? It's been mostly positive, I'd say. It's As baseball fans, we're pretty 
knowledgeable on the fact that baseball fields are varied and have a lot of different distances and all quirks and stuff like that. The one negative comment I get from time to time is like, oh, baseball should have one normalized fence distance. Hmm. Uh, and I definitely disagree with that. Uh, yeah. I don't really think much controversy can arise from this. I think it's kind of a wholesome project that doesn't yeah. really hurt any parties involved. I was going to say, I think the variation in square footage of the field from the biggest MLB park to the smallest, it's like Coors Field and Minute Maid maybe. And it's about a 14% difference, I think, mm-hmm. in just field square footage. I wonder what the biggest difference is that you've found just like between the most extreme fields in a state or even in the 10 states that you've done. I I don't know whether you have the square footage for for every field. The biggest field I have recorded is Concord High School in Delaware with a total area of 7.2 acres. Okay. Uh, And the smallest, it was 100 but I since found out that's not actually where they play. Mm-hmm. So second smallest is Kamehameha School mm. in Honolulu, Hawaii, mm. with 1.7 acres. <laughs> so okay. part of my math, that's like 5.5 acres. Okay, yeah, that's a big range. So course Field is like 121,500 square feet. Acres like 44,000 square feet or something like that. Okay, Coors Field is 2.66 acres according to Business Insider India. Right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, so <laughs> so you're telling me so that biggest one is like, <laughs> like what, three times bigger than Coors Field or something like that? Yeah. Is that, my goodness, what are the dimensions of that place? I do remember that one was just crazy because it's at a park and there's no fence. Okay. It was 600 feet to left field, 715 to middle, <laughs> like dead center, 440 feet to right. Uh-huh. So, okay. yeah, yeah, a lot of inside of the park homers on that one. Yeah, I guess like everything's inside the park if there's no yeah. <laughs> there's no fence. I mean, that's a question that I think we've answered and that we get still sometimes just what if you did away with outfield fences as used to be the case in some early parks and I guess also mm-hmm. in some high school parks to this day. <laughs> Well, that is indeed wild. I'd love to know what the offensive environment is like there. So (laughs) not to get ahead of yourself, because uh, this is uh, not your life's work, but uh, a chunk of your life's work. So can you foresee doing other levels at some point? College parks, uh, little league parks, uh, international parks, etc.? I vaguely remember someone wanted me to do a European league that they watch. They wanted me to attempt that one. Mm -hmm. I mean, if it's Teams depend like depending on the amount of teams, I'd be willing to do that for sure. Like mm-hmm. I don't think there's really like a limit to that. as long as there are fields. I, <laughs> I guess there really isn't a limit. No, it could be a life's work if you want it to be, probably. <laughs> so, what are your plans as far as? I know you have a website where you've made some things uh, available so far, daveruss.myportfolio.com slash baseball. What are your plans for building that out or making prints uh, available or, or sharing the data with people eventually? The eventual plan is to kind of take all the the fields and stuff and put that into like a, like a reference kind of thing where you can just kind of go in, look at the fields, regardless if it's if it's weird or not, and even like filter out like by distance and state so you can like find similar distances and all that kind of stuff. And then I do plan on eventually selling 
posters of the outline graphics once mm-hmm. I figure out the legal limits <laughs> for that. Right. So you've put for state by state, you've uh, charted the outlines basically of, mm-hmm. of every field in that state so that you can see some of the differential there, right? Right. So how does this relate to your other work, either what you're aspiring to do as a career or what you did in school? I know you've done some photography, you've done some other sorts of sports data visualization. How does this gel with your career ambitions or, or does it? <laughs> I, I have very vague... <laughs> career goals at the moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do know I want to work in the field of sports. Mm -hmm. To be honest with you, I would do any job for any major league team or Mm -hmm. minor league team, as long as it's in sports, really. So there's no real bounds yet, but Mm -hmm. I think this is a good entry point into that. What are the tools that you use for people who are interested in getting in the weeds, just the the software or the other resources that you've used to map all of these things and then plot them? Uh, so far, it's just Google, uh, mm-hmm. Google Maps, and then like any spreadsheet software, and then Photoshop and Illustrator. That's I'm not like one of those QGIS, super intricate imagery people. Um, it's pretty bare bones here. Well, it comes out looking great, at least to my uneducated eye as uh, someone Thank who's you. graphic design, not my passion, but clearly yours. And I think it does show. Is there anything that we haven't discussed yet? No, uh, no pun intended, but I think we covered all the bases on this one. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I really look forward to uh, continuing to track your work over the rest of this odyssey. People can find you on Twitter at Dave. H-R-U-S. And I mentioned the website a second ago, but I will link to that in the show notes. We'll have to have you back, if not before, certainly when you complete this project, which I I hope you will, (laughs) because uh, it's been a lot of fun to follow along. And it's definitely in in line with our philosophy here at Effectively Wild of uh, appreciating the, the weird eccentricities of baseball. Thank you. Okay, it's time for the Stat Blast. Today's Stat Blast or Stat Blasts are presented by our sponsors at Tops Now. Hopefully you've heard about Tops Now by now. These are the trading cards available for a short time only at Tops.com. After each day's games, someone does something notable in a baseball game, Tops turns right around and makes a baseball card about it, which you can then purchase from Tops.com and get shipped to your door for free. The cards aren't free, but the shipping is. And the rapid turnaround technology here would have been mind-blowing to earlier generations. You're telling me that something happened in a baseball game and the very next day you can buy a card featuring that moment? What is Major League Baseball fixed? Is this scripted? Is this sports entertainment? Is it WWE? Are they telling tops who the next month's standouts will be so that they can keep cranking out the baseball cards? No. No one knows what tomorrow's Tops Now cards will be. They're just able to make these moments into cards that quickly. Anyway, check out the offerings available at Tops Now each day not just to thank Tops Now for sponsoring the Stat Blast, but because you might be happy to have those collectibles to memorialize as the tagline says, your hero, your team, your moment. 
Well, I was planning to do some stat blasting today, and then Meg fell ill, and I thought it probably wouldn't be fun to do the stat blast as a monologue. And then I thought, well, why not have the frequent stat blast consultant himself on the show who did the stat blasting so that he could deliver the results in person? So I am joined now by frequent stat blast consultant Ryan Nelson, making his Effectively Wild debut, although you've been here in name and in spirit almost weekly for quite a while now. So this is probably overdue, but welcome to the podcast. Finally, Ryan. Hello, Ben. How are you? Doing okay. And I think I've shared maybe that you're a Braves fan. I've certainly told people that they could find you on Twitter at RSNelson23. But is there anything else you'd care to share about your background and how you became capable of stat blasting and what it is that you enjoy about it and how, if at all, it's connected to what you do as a day job? Well, first, I'll start with a correction, actually. Sorry to do that to you. This is my (laughs) second Effectively Wild appearance. Okay. I'm uh, now tied for 102nd all time. (laughs) I looked it up this morning. Oh, good stat blasting. Um, but it has been, uh, I think, about six years or so. So it's been quite a minute. Yeah. It was in the Jeff Sullivan era. So right, don't right. blame you for forgetting. Yes. It's been many hundreds of episodes since then. <laughs> yep. Give people the context for when you were on the first time. Yeah. The first time I was on was right out of college. And I had written an article that I had sent to Jeff since he had also written a similar article um, regarding essentially the value of any particular draft pick in any mm. draft. And how basically um, the draft is more of a crapshoot than you could ever imagine. And mm-hmm. even the number one overall pick is only worth something like 10 war on mm-hmm. average when you look at all the draft picks all time. So um, I, I'd sent that to him just kind of saying, hey, you know, interesting. We had the same thought here. And he said, cool. Do you want to come on the podcast? I said, oh, <laughs> right. OK, I guess. So that was my appearance. And uh, then, you know, several years went by and then uh, the opportunity came up to do some stat blasting and. Mm-hmm. I threw my hat in the ring and you accepted. So here I am now. That's right. Episode 1070. 1000, is that what we say? 1070. That was the episode. Yeah, that was yeah, uh, almost half the series ago now at this <laughs> yeah, point. So another life. Right. Yeah. So how did you develop the skills that you have put to use in stat blasting? So I actually went back to grad school only about a year after graduating from college, went to the, uh, Georgia Tech and got a degree in analytics, which is a new thing that hasn't been around very long, but now it's becoming quite popular. And uh, part of that degree was statistics, computer science, and uh, worked through things I was interested in, one of which was baseball, and uh, downloaded RetroSheet. And next thing you know, I'm I'm searching through there, and um, it's not as hard as it seems. And so I I think a lot of people think uh, it takes some genius knowledge, and uh, it very much does not. So little <laughs> practice, and you can do it too. Yeah, for the code heads out there, what is your technique? What languages do you use for these things? Yeah, I use R, um, mm-hmm. which is the shortest named coding language, of course, and also mm-hmm. uh, a statistically inclined coding language, so quite good for this type of thing. Mm-hmm. Very equivalent to Python is another very popular one. They're not all that different. So very entry-level um, and good for this kind of uh, surface level coding as opposed to something more uh, in depth, like an application or something like that. Sometimes it's pretty straightforward and you can query it up in a moment, it seems like. And then sometimes you're racking your brains for hours to, or days to figure out what's the best way to run something or how to run something such that it can finish in our lifetimes. <laughs> so <laughs> sometimes it's more complicated than other times. Yeah, that's right. And I never uh, remember that better than when I post in the Stat Blast uh, Discord channel. 
And when mm-hmm. I'm struggling and someone says, why don't you just do this? It'll take 15 seconds. I'm like, you know what? That's just because you're smarter at this than I am. So good job. Yeah. If you're not in the Patreon Discord group, you're missing out on lots of stat blasting in the stat blast channel where Absolutely. people do stat blast just sort of freelance just for curiosity. So you have several stat blasts for us today that have been building up for a bit, and we'll see how many we can get through. And I guess we'll start with one that was sent in by listener Joe in response to a tweet from the account Baseball Doesn't Exist at Baseball Doesn't. And the account said that Zach Granke has struck out 20% of the active managers in MLB, which maybe sounds like a lot. So Joe said, I ran across this stat about our patron saint Zach Granke on Twitter and was not sure if there was a way for your crack team of frequent stat blast consultants to figure out whether this is some sort of record or not. This impresses me a great deal, but I know that pitchers in the past used to pitch a lot longer than even Granke, and we're seemingly in an age where there are fewer major leaguers as managers, way more teams and more manager turnover, any chance you could stat blast this. And yeah, it does at first blush sound pretty impressive. It wouldn't have been tweeted if uh, the account owner didn't think it was impressive. So should we actually say wow about this one? Yeah, this is definitely one where I read it and I had no idea this could have been a record or it could have been absolutely nothing. And it turns out it's closer to absolutely nothing than a record. (laughs) Yeah. So not surprisingly, lots of pitchers have struck out at least one active manager um, in any given year, you know, going back the last 10 or 20 years, there's something like 30 to 60 pitchers who have done it at least once, but six is getting up there, but it happens still fairly regularly. You know, I found about 550 or so player seasons using play by play data. So that's not every season ever, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, but most recent seasons uh, that have done this exact thing where they've struck out six or more um, of the active managers. So about 10 every season, give or take, mm-hmm. that have done six or more. Definitely not super common, but not all that rare either. Um, so I went back through and found the most recent examples of more than six. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for seven, we have CC Sabathia in 2018. He struck out Mike Matheny, Aaron Boone, AJ Hinch, Joe McEwing, Gabe Kapler, Alex Cora, and Kevin Cash. Mm-hmm. Uh, the caveat there is, is Good old Joe was uh, a temporary manager. He stepped in when Rick Renteria of the White Sox was sick. Uh, So if you don't really want to count that because he was only a manager for a couple games, uh, it would be Randy Wolf in 2015 was the most recent with exactly seven. Uh Um, Eight, also CC Sabathia. Actually, one year later in 2019, uh, we add in uh, Rod Barajas, Chris Woodward, and Rocco Baldelli, but lose Mike Matheny, who also lost his job. (laughs) Again, though, Rod Barajas, interim manager. So maybe this is the most recent true seven rather than eight. Uh, Nine, we have to go back to 2005 with Roger Clemens. Uh, He had struck out nine major league managers that were active that year. Uh, And 10 is where we really start getting into rare form. Uh, There's only been 10 ever player seasons that had 10 active managers struck out by that pitcher. Most recently, Charlie Huff and John Candelaria in 1993. Mm -hmm. There have been eight 11s. Most recently, Goose Gossage in 1994. And there have been four 12s. We're getting pretty up there in numbers uh, with Jesse Orozco in 2002. And then finally, we get to the top five. There's been five player seasons ever with more than 12 strikeouts of active managers. We have Burt Blylevin in 1992 with 13, as well as Goose Gossage in 1992 with 13. Nolan Ryan, same year, probably a trend there, 1992 with 13. 
Goose Gossage, 1993, with 15. And finally, leading the list is Nolan Ryan, not all that surprising, 1993. He had struck out 16 of the 30 active managers that led teams that year at some point in his career. Just kind of an unbelievable stat there. More than half. Technically, it was exactly half because the Reds had two managers that season, and he had struck Mm -hmm. out both of them, Tony Perez (laughs) and Davey Johnson. So uh, at any given time, half of the teams were led by a a manager who had been struck out by Nolan Ryan at some point in their career. (laughs) Well, I guess uh, if you had to guess who was the leader, he would have been up there pitching into his mid-40s at a high level and striking out a ton of batters. And I guess that must have been an era maybe when a number of managers were uh, younger or or recently retired players. In fact, Nolan Ryan's manager that year was Kevin Kennedy, who was several years younger than Nolan Ryan was, as I recall from a past stat blast about all Marmol and players who are way older than their managers, though Kennedy was a career minor leaguer, so he was not struck out in the majors by Nolan Ryan. But that makes this Granky stat sound extremely unimpressive, like not even worth tweeting. It sounds good, but all time, you got to stick a, a one in front of the six there, and then it's actually a record. So it's one of those that can be uh, kind of misleading, I guess. It's yeah. just that it's not unimpressive, but in context, once you actually do the work, it's not that special. Yeah, you just have to strike out 10,000 over the course of 60 seasons and you'll do it yourself too. <laughs> no sweat. All right. This is something I spotted on Reddit and asked you about because uh, someone on this Reddit thread said this better be a stat blast on Effectively Wild soon. And we don't take orders from Reddit necessarily, but we do take requests. So this was uh, prompted by a 16-pitch plate appearance between Anthony Santander and Royals pitcher Taylor Clark. And I've always been fascinated by long plate appearances. The one that was interesting about this, which is the longest at bat or plate appearance so far this season, is that it did not go to a full count. So the questioner wanted to know what is the longest plate appearance in terms of number of pitches that did not go to a full count. And as always with pitch-by-pitch data, we're talking about since 1988, since uh, that's when it really started comprehensively. Yeah, that's right. Someone put up the stat signal and uh, it was (laughs) seen far and wide. So so we actually have two uh, at-bats tied for the record in this stat which is actually Mm -hmm. 18. You may remember just a few years ago, Brandon Belt set the record with, I believe, 21, but that did go to a full count. So two plate appearances reached 18 pitches without getting to a full count. Uh, So the first was May 18th, 1997, in a Royals-Tigers game. And uh, Bip Roberts, great name, faced Felipe Lira. And he had the following sequence in his at-bat. So he had a foul ball, a called strike, and a ball. And then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten consecutive foul balls, followed by another ball, three more foul balls, and then finally a ground out for the 18th pitch. Uh, one interesting point here, though, that if an 18 pitch at bat wasn't interesting enough, that makes it even more interesting, is both of the balls were pitch outs, including the second one, which was thrown on an attempted stolen base. So there was a throw down to second. And there were also seven pickoffs in this plate appearance. So in total, I guess you could say that's actually 27 balls thrown uh, in this plate appearance all to get one ground out. Uh Uh, So really working overtime there, uh, both catcher, pitcher, everyone around. 
mm-hmm. just to finally get a normal ground out. Yeah. And we actually still have the second one as well. Alex Cora, May 12th, 2004, also had an 18 pitch at bat. Also mm-hmm. enders- ended interestingly in a, for a different reason. Uh, so he started off the count with a ball called strike and ball. Very normal 2-1 count. Then decided to hit 14 consecutive foul balls in a row and then a two-run homer on the 18th pitch. Wow. So that is a tough go for the pitcher there. Uh, Just could not get him out. And then it come back to bite him, you know, in the worst possible way. Two-run homer. Ended up winning four to nothing anyway. So the two runs didn't really matter all that much. But uh, (laughs) quite the ending there. That's pretty good. And 17 has happened twice. Also, you noted 16 has happened. 15 happened 10 times. Russell Carlton did some research about 15 years ago. I don't know why I remember these things where he looked at what happens with each subsequent foul in a plate appearance. If the count isn't changing and he checked to see whether it would benefit the batter, because if there's a times through the order effect, you might think that there's a long plate appearance effect. You're seeing more and more of the pitcher's pitches. You're tiring out the pitcher. Then again, the batter might be getting tired out if you have 14 consecutive fouls. And he wrote, if the batter is fouling off two strike pitches after being behind in the count, it means that he's more likely to get on base. But after the count evens, there's no particular advantage to fouling off a lot of pitches. Seems that even if the batter is behind in the count, if he's still at least making contact, it's a good sign. However, the effects don't seem to grow by huge margins when the batter spoils multiple pitches. Talk of the pitcher having to show the batter extra pitches and this being a net gain for the batter doesn't seem to hold water, at least as far as this particular batter being able to get on base in this particular at bat. Of course, once you get up to 18 pitch plate appearances, you're working with small sample sizes, but it worked out well in one of these cases. It's got to be pretty crushing to have your pitch count go up that much and then also not even get an out. Yeah, that's why you never give up. All right, next one. So I mentioned earlier that the Pirates' hot start had cooled, that they were on a lengthy losing streak, but they continued to be in first place. Looks like they're about to win as we speak here. But we got a question from Aaron, who is a Patreon supporter, and said the Pirates are on a seven-game losing streak and, as I type this message, are leading their division. This has me wondering, what is the longest streak of consecutive losses a team has had while remaining in first place? I could imagine seven being close to the top because in addition to potentially losing ground daily, division-leading teams are less likely to lose a bunch of games in a row. I could also imagine being way off and some historic collapses escaping my memory. Is this streak significant? Right. Yes. So it is significant. It's one of the longer streaks in history, uh, but still a few games shy of the record. The record's actually the 2017 Dodgers, obviously an incredible team, made the World Series that year. Some people may remember that they lost 11 games in a row towards the end of the season. Thankfully, didn't really matter all that much. They had a 16-game lead going into that 11-game losing streak, still ended the streak up nine games, still cruised into the playoffs, no issues there. Uh, probably, I'm sure some people were concerned that you know this was a sign that they were going to struggle in the playoffs. They very much did not, made it all the way to the end, just about won it if it wasn't for certain events that we don't need to describe anymore. <laughs> on this podcast at least. Second place was 10 in a row by the 2010 Padres. Uh, They started their streak with a six and a half game lead and very came very close to losing it. They finally won a game after 10 straight losses to keep their one game lead in the division. Fortunately, they would only go 14 and 13 the rest of the way and finish uh, two games back of the Giants, who -hmm. they themselves would go on to the World Series that year as well. Uh, Nine has been done twice, 1970 Twins and the 95 Angels, and eight has been done 15 times. I won't read them all out, but I will note that the 2006 Cardinals actually did it twice in the same season. 
They had two separate eight-game losing streaks, all while being in first the entire time. And then, of course, they went on to win the World Series that year as well. So all, all I think this means is that if you have long losing streaks while in first, you're going to go to the World Series basically guaranteed. You can lock it down. <laughs> right, uh, okay. One other note on those is that Pirates are still pretty shy of that all-time record, but they are very close to tying or breaking a slightly different record. And that is that the 1987 Brewers had an eight-game losing streak while in first, and they were the only team to have an eight-game losing streak while in first that then knocked them out of first place. Mm -hmm. In other words, all of those other teams we mentioned all stayed in first, finally won a game, and kept staying in first place, at least for the time being. The Brewers ended up losing 12 straight the ninth of which knocked them out of first and they fell all the way to third place in their division. So if the pirates lose two more games to knock themselves out of first, that would break that record, uh, you know, of ineptitude, knocking you out of first place, but taking that long to do so. Right. Well, unless the Rockies have a late comeback in them, doesn't look like it's going to happen. It appears that the Pirates will be back to their winning ways, and they'll be happy not to set that record, I'm sure. Yeah, the Pirates will just have to lose another eight games later in the season to go to the World Series. <laughs> Could happen. All right. Here is a question from Brandon, Patreon supporter, and this was in the Stat Blast Discord channel. He said, what's the record for the most times a team has gone nine up and nine down through the first three innings in a single season? Feels like every other game I watch, the A's are doing it on offense, certainly not doing it when they're pitching, but <laughs> on offense. Um, I was actually surprised at how small this number was. I mentioned so in the Stat Blast Discord channel. It's 18. So 18 times in a season, a team has gone nine up, nine down, basically perfect three innings for their opponent. And that was done by the 1967 Reds. Mm -hmm. and, you know, 18 doesn't seem like a lot. You know, 10% of your games doesn't seem that crazy. Uh, but someone else in the channel noted that, you know, there's something like a 3% chance of that happening. So mm -hmm. having it happen in over 10% of your games is actually quite, quite bad. Cincinnati Reds 1967 had 18. Second place is a three-way tie at 15. Uh, mm -hmm. With the Angels in 1970, the Expos in 01, and the uh, 2019 Blue Jays. So mm -hmm. three more than second place is not where you want to be. The A's this year have actually only done it three times, I believe. So they have quite a ways to go. It really hasn't been the offense that's been the problem with that A's team. Uh, <laughs> no. it's, it's, uh, I'm sure that the A's pitching staff has not had very many perfect three innings. <laughs> right. Yeah. I Supporters surprised to see that Reds team at the top because it wasn't a bad team. It was a winning team, but it was a low offense era, obviously, the year before the year of the pitcher. And it was not a very good hitting team. I think they were 16th in WRC plus of 20 teams that year. And I guess it's just a little bit random and one of those things. Next stat blast. Well, this was on Twitter. Actually, it was tweeted by at its D train. And this person said with JP France set to make his MLB debut against the Mariners, he'll most likely face JP Crawford and Ty France. When was the last time a pitcher faced two batters with his name, if ever? And they tagged Sarah Langs and Jason Stark, but you Kool-Aid man it in there and answered it yourself. So <laughs> what did you find? That's right. The stats couldn't hide. Uh, this one was actually posted in that uh, Discord channel as well. So, you know, right. just more advertising for you there. <laughs> I, I found it's not that rare, right? It happens a couple times a year. Mm -hmm. You know, some recent examples I found were September 28th of 2021, Luis Garcia faced Avisail Garcia and Luis Urias uh, on July 17th of that same year. 
Jorge Lopez faced Nicky Lopez and Jorge Soler. And then towards the end of 2020, on September 1st, Carlos Hernandez faced Carlos Santana and Cesar Hernandez. That actually happened to also be the most recent game where the pitcher was making his debut. Carlos Hernandez, first game of his career, facing uh, Carlos Santana and Cesar Hernandez. So that also Mm -hmm. answers that question. Digging a little further, because you may have noticed a pattern there. A lot of Latin names, which Mm -hmm. aren't particularly surprising. You know, lots of Latin players in baseball. And Mm -hmm. all the names come from one language, so there's lots of similar names. The most recent explicitly non-Latin name I found was actually Tim Peterson, who faced Jace Peterson and Tim Beckham on August 15th, 2018. Had to go back to Jace and uh, Mr. Beckham to find a uh, explicitly non-Latin name. Yeah, I guess it seems like it should be rarer than it is because the example was France, right? And, right. and JP, it, it's a little like there have only been three players named France with the last name France in Major League history. And that's counting Aussie France, who played one game for the 1890 Cubs. <laughs> so they're the only two French, really, players, <laughs> France's in Major League modern history. So the fact that they're facing each other is, uh, is kind of interesting. I did wonder, like, JP, whether that should count because those are initials, you know, and I mean, I guess JP Crawford is John Paul Crawford and JP France is Jonathan Patrick France. Uh, so they're John and Jonathan, I guess it's it's close enough. But yeah, it's almost like you would have to kind of quantify the rarity of the names because that's what makes this particular example interesting. Otherwise, you, you probably could have told that it was not that uncommon. Yeah, that's right. You make a good point. I guess the whole premise is a farce. We, we need to cancel the stat blast. <laughs> nope, let's keep going. So here's one. This was also from Brandon, Patreon supporter in the Discord group. Wanted to know the record for number of losses in a season in which the losing team scored first. So not come from behind wins, but the opposite of that fall from ahead losses. Yeah, that's right. I believe uh, Brandon is an A's fan, if you couldn't tell from all his uh, <laughs> loathing questions that he has coming in here about the A's terrible yeah. streaks here. So the record for most games lost after scoring first is actually 53 by the 2006 Rays. They scored first in 87 of their games about half the time, but only won 34 of those 87 losing 53. Uh, that is not good. Generally, if you score first, you win more often than not. Uh, and that was not the case for that raise. Uh, the New York Mets in 1962, not an especially great team there, uh, f- lost 50 games that they scored first in, as well as the 1998 Florida Marlins lost 50 games, although they, they were a little bit better that year, I think. So, you know, 50 is, is about the cap. Lots of teams have done it in the 40s. Uh, we have another, you know, 32 or so that have lost 40 or more games that they scored first. But as I mentioned, even those teams, some of those teams that lost 40 games in which they scored first, they still had winning records in mm-hmm. games they scored first. It's pretty hard not to. Uh, but yeah. there are some examples of teams who didn't. The worst winning percentage in games in which a team scored first is 19.6%, uh, which <laughs> no surprise here, the 1899 Cleveland Spiders they scored first in only 46 of their games, you know, maybe a, just over a quarter of their games they scored first, and they lost 80% of them anyway, only winning <laughs> nine games in which they scored first. So uh, not surprising, but still kind of mind-blowing. Second place is the 32 Red Sox at 30%. So the Cleveland Spiders really set quite the mark there. 
almost impossibly bad, but that's the, we already all, all know that about the Cleveland Spiders. Right. Yes. It's not flattering that the A's of this year have been compared to them at times, too. That's right. So some recent examples of teams that have been pretty bad in games they've scored first. The 2003 Tigers only won 36% of the games they scored first in. Those 98 Florida Marlins, 38%. Those 2006 Rays, 39%. And the most recent team on this list, the 2019 Tigers, lost 41% of the games that they scored first in. Now, did you have a related follow-up about the 2001 Mariners? We we did, yes. So they actually had the opposite. They had the highest rate of winning games in which they scored first. And just winning games, period, I guess. Also also both. (laughs) Probably a correlation there, not surprising. (laughs) Yes. Uh, they went 86 and 9 in games in which they scored first, or 90.5%. Uh, that is pretty far and away the best record. I, I don't have it in front of me, but I think second place was around 81, 82%. So mm-hmm. uh, really just knocked out of the park. But if you want to set the all time wins record, you kind of have to do something like that. Right. All right. And the last one, just to clear your plate here, this was an email from Connor who said, I'm looking at Jake Cronenworth's Fangraphs page and just noticed that his batting average, on-base percentage, and slugging percentage has each declined every year of his career. Despite this, his season plate appearance totals have increased each year. He is sadly not projected to continue this trajectory, but four years of this trend seems like a stretch anyway. What is the longest streak of this kind in MLB history? It may be easier to just use WRC Plus instead of the trio of stats I've provided. So declining stats, but increasing playing time. Who has the longest streak? Yeah, it's not very long, right? I mean, there's a lot of qualifiers here, especially if we're looking at the slash line. You're talking about your average has to go down, your on-base has to go down, and your slugging has to go down, plus your plate appearances are going up. So that's a lot of qualifiers. So probably not surprising. The record's actually only five seasons, and it was done by a pitcher, which kind of makes (laughs) sense because smaller sample size. The pitcher's name is Bill Hallahan. And he played from the 20s into the 30s. And he started off his career with three plate appearances with a 71 WRC plus and a 333, 333, 333 slash line. And it turns out that he was not almost an MLB average hitter and he got worse every year. And he also pitched more every year. Uh, So for five straight seasons, his plate appearances went up and his uh, slash lines by his fifth season, it was 099, 170, 123 which is much more like the pitchers we're used to hitting. So um, he did got worse every year after pitching more and more every year. Four has happened a few times, uh, four times. Uh, there was two position players to do that, Armando Rios, Salvador Perez, and two pitchers to do it, Eric Stoltz and Johnny Welch. So if Jake Cronenworth repeated this year, he would join those four as tied for second, but it doesn't quite look like he's going to make it. He's, one, probably not going to get enough plate appearances, but also... Uh, He's currently outpacing last year's stats, so uh, he's probably not going to be added there. I'm sure he'd rather not if he could help it. (laughs) So we do it by WRC+. Plus. The record is also five, uh, but it's done by another pitcher this time, Luke Hamlin. Uh, He had five straight seasons of plate appearances going up. His WRC+, Plus is dropping. Uh, His first season, he had six plate appearances, and at 240 WRC+, Plus, the pitcher could not sustain that rate. And his WRC+, Plus dropped from 240 to 19 15, negative 18, and negative 27. In his sixth season, it actually dropped to negative 60, but he actually had less plate appearances in that sixth year, so he didn't quite qualify by that that statistic. So he almost got six, but didn't play enough, but still holds the record at five. Uh, Again, it has happened four times by WRC WRC Plus as well. So 
you know, that's kind of the record four to five, depending on how you look at it. Uh, doesn't look like Cronenworth is going to make it to, to f- uh, four to join or to five to extend. Right. Would be hard to exceed 684 plate appearances for one thing, but also I guess the offensive environment has picked up a little bit. His WRC plus is uh, almost identical to last year's, but his slash stats are all at least a little bit better as of now. He's got like 30 points of, of slugging on his last year slugging percentage. Again, the ball has been a little livelier and it's up league wide, but I guess that's one of the things that can make it hard to sustain this sort of run. Yeah, I'm generally uh, rooting for Cronin and all other players to not get worse and worse and worse. So let's hope he doesn't do it. (laughs) Yes. All right. And I have a little stat blast that was calculated just while I've been talking to you because I got curious about your gap between appearances on Effectively Wild and where that ranked among the longest gaps going from 1070 to 2004, a gap of 934 episodes. And according to Chris Hannell, fellow listener patreon supporter who started the discord group and keeps the record of all the effectively wild guest appearances you are not only not the record for longest gap but not even close to the record for longest gap which right now is held by jeff fletcher who covers the angels and he joined us way back on episode 139 as our angels preview guest i think on the first year that we did previews 2013 and then he came on episode 1876 to talk about his shohei otani book so that was a gap of 1737 episodes which uh, puts your gap to shame According to Chris's numbers, you rank a mere 15th on the list of longest gaps. So, Well, that's good. I wasn't planning on coming back till episode 3900 anyway, so I'll claim the record then. (laughs) We might have you on before then, and we will certainly hear your name and benefit from your research before then. So go follow Ryan on Twitter at RSNelson23, and your work is always appreciated this week and most weeks. Yeah, thanks, Ben. I love doing it, so thanks for letting me participate. All right, let's finish up with the Pass Blast, which comes to us from 2004 and from David Lewis, who is an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston. And David writes, box office blunder on the base paths. During the 2004 season, Major League Baseball announced an unusual marketing partnership between the league and Columbia Pictures. In order to promote Columbia's upcoming release, Spider-Man 2, MLB and Columbia executives unveiled plans in May to place a 6-inch by 6-inch Spider-Man logo on first, second, and third base for one weekend of interleague play in June. Unfortunately for the two corporations, the idea was nearly universally panned by fans. An ESPN.com poll with nearly 45,000 respondents found that 79.4% of fans disapproved of the partnership, suggesting that the league was selling out by teaming up with the studio. One day after announcing the partnership, MLB backtracked on the decision, canceling plans to put advertisements on the bases. Baseball Commissioner Bud Selig said, It isn't worth, frankly, having a debate about. I'm a traditionalist. The problem in sports marketing, particularly in baseball, as you're always walking a very sensitive line. Nobody loves tradition and history as much as I do. Other aspects of the deal remained, such as movie trailers being shown on Jumbotrons and Spider-Man-themed giveaways. However, the bases would no longer be touched. And gosh, now that the bases are bigger, even more 
prime real estate for advertising. Honestly, this is less than 20 years ago, but it sounds so quaint. If there's one thing MLB has accomplished, particularly under Rob Manfred, it is getting us to accept the idea that MLB is selling out and just expecting that and shrugging most of the time. We may not have ads for movies on bases, but we have superimposed ads on the mound. We have ads on player jerseys now, ads on umpire uniforms, ads all over the place, and I'm sort of sanguine about this. I guess I've become accustomed and resigned to it myself. I tend not to care so much about uniforms anyway, but again, 2004, not that long ago, and we're way beyond public pressure putting the kibosh on MLB's plans to sell out. And we got a lot of responses to our discussions last week of player names and nominative determinism. Some others that were mentioned, Scott Blewett, just a great name for a reliever. In his very brief major league career, at least thus far, Scott Blewett has neither lost a game nor blown a save. You've got Josh Fields. That's a full sentence. Cutter Crawford, of course, throws a cutter. Charles Bender threw a curve. Homer Bailey allowed lots of homers late in his career. Larry Walker walked. Lots of turners turned double plays. Brandon Belt belts the ball. At least he used to. Kevin Quackenbush just signed with the Long Island Ducks. A bird in the hand is worth Quackenbush. And there's some players who have semi-baseball appropriate names, but might be even better in other sports like Jay Baller or Jake Stryker. Listener Steven pointed us toward Tigers prospect Josh Crouch. He's a catcher. Not the first catcher named Crouch. There was a Jack Crouch who played in the majors in the 30s. Speaking of catchers, Ed likes what we mentioned last week, that Jason Castro was a catcher for the Astros, C. Astro. But also, he's from Castro Valley, California. And if we're going to count executives, of course, Brian Cashman is the most appropriate name for a Yankees general manager. And lastly, Dennis says a whole category of nominative determinism you've overlooked is players named after famous baseball players. They're not as fun as the puns, but of course, Ichiro Cano was destined to become a professional baseball player when he grew up. Other examples are Dalton Varsho, who became a catcher like Darren Dalton, Jeter Downs, who became a shortstop, and Willie Mays Akins. I think this is true nominative determinism in that there was likely actual pressure to go into baseball based on their names. It's a fun pun, but none of Colin Holderman's classmates heard his name and said, wow, I bet you're going to pitch in middle relief. We talked about baseball zen last week. We mentioned the one that looks like a Sasquatch. A number of people informed us that this is not the Sasquatch, it's the Pasquatch. As Francesca wrote, the Sasquatch is actually a Pasquatch based on one of Vinny Pasquantino's nicknames. The Pasquatch makes an appearance on the top of the Royals Hall of Fame building in the left field concourse of Kauffman Stadium each time Vinny is on base or has hit a home run. Vinny has a little Pasquatch necklace and the Royals did a little promo video featuring the nickname as well. Listener Dave says he can enjoy the Zen because of the field diagram that appears on the screen as the Zen is playing. He says, I was reminded about my frustration about the painting the infield baseline Zen. I've had MLB TV for only a few years and I cringe when the Zen is on the screen as a former minor league grounds keeper, I can't overlook the error of the painted or chalked lines. The first and third baselines do not go through the middle of the first and third base bags, but instead the outer edge of the bags. How can I or any baseball fan have Zen energy with an incorrect baseball infield layout? Also an update on the Dodgers paternity leave situation. Caleb Ferguson, as expected for someone who is expecting, has gone home to be with his wife, who is about to give birth. So he should be added to the paternity list soon, which will move the Dodgers into a tie for the most placements in a single season. Shout out to listener Anton in the Discord group who took a look at the birthdays of U.S.-born MLB players and was able to confirm a relative age effect in line with high school and little league age cutoffs. So fewer MLB players than one would expect based on U.S. birth 
birthday trends were born in June and July. More were born in August and September. I'll link to his graph. I noted last week that the Marlins were 10-0 in one-run games. They're now 11-0, which ties the 72 Mets for the most consecutive wins in one-run games to begin a season. And happy retirement to Effectively Wild guest Grayson Griner, who is on episode 1215 with the two other six-foot-six catchers in history, Pete Kogel and Don Geely, both of whom sadly have died since then. Grayson Griner didn't have a long big league career, but he played in a lot more games than either Geely or Kogel did. It's tough to be a tall catcher, it turns out, which was the theme of that conversation. Speaking of once and perhaps future catchers, Wilson Contreras knocked in a couple of runs for the Cardinals against the Cubs, and the Cardinals did win that game. Andrew Kisner was hitless. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free aside from our stat blast sponsorship, and get themselves access to some perks. Matt Kennedy, Robert Johns, Sam Beeson, Brock, and Nishant Menon. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the aforementioned Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, as well as monthly bonus episodes, playoff live streams, discounts on ad-free fangraphs, memberships, and merch, and much, much more. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. If not, you can contact us via email at podcast at fangraphs.com. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Alex Farron for the new Effectively Wild theme heard on this episode. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. I helped a little because Shane went to the Mariners game and was caught on Root Sports applauding Logan Gilbert after he lost his perfect game bid in the seventh. Thanks for listening, and we will be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. Does baseball look the same to you as it does to me? When we look at baseball, how much do we see? Well, the curveballs bend and the home runs fly. More to the game than meets the eye. To get the stats compiled and the stories filed. Fans on the internet might get riled, but we can break it down on Effectively Wild.